You're listening to episode 46 of the Secret Origins Podcast, with stories about the Justice League of America's headquarters, and the New Teen Titans headquarters, and the Legion of Superheroes headquarters. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this show is now 50 episodes old. That's right, if you count the three annuals and one special we've already covered, issue 46 is actually the 50th entry in the Secret Origins series. And what better way to honor this milestone than by talking about the Justice League of America, the new Teen Titans, and the Legion of Superheroes... headquarters? Okay... An entire issue dedicated to some buildings did not fill me with a lot of excitement. But damn it, it's the responsibility of me and my guests to make it exciting. So that's what we're going to do. The first story on deck is the original headquarters of the Justice League, also known as the Secret Sanctuary. And joining me for this story is a brand new guest making his first appearance on the show. He's the host of Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast. Please welcome Mike Peacock. How are you, Mike? Oh, I'm doing wonderful, Ryan. Uh, great to be here. I feel like, you know, I've made it somehow. <laughs> You're big time. <laughs> this is legit. This is the show. Uh, the story that we're going to cover deals with the very earliest days of the Justice League of America, and that's kind of your jam. So why did you choose to do a podcast on the League's early adventures? Well, for me, it was sort of a fascination with the pre-crisis era because, you know, you know how certain people out there have, like, their preferential settings for certain characters or teams or concepts? I am that, one of those people, yes. Exactly. <laughs> and that is kind of where my mindset goes. I mean, I've grown in recent years to appreciate other incarnations of the Justice League, but really it's the Justice League of America, the one started up by Julius Schwartz and Gardner Fox, which did really essentially get me into comics. I remember my first exposure to them was through, oh, the scattered pieces that they did of the team and the DC Blue Ribbon Digest. Mm -hmm. And every now and then I would pick up a few more extra issues. I will say my heart and soul probably primarily belongs to the satellite era, as I'm sure most people have their fondness for the Justice League centered around. But I did learn to expand more towards the secret sanctuary slash happy harbor years over the sequential years. I'd say probably the one big mystery spot for me, and it's going to be interesting when I actually do reach that point in the show 
the Detroit years. There's only been very small samplings of those Detroit issues I've ever really taken in in my lifetime. All right, well, we will talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes, but in case someone is listening to this episode as their first experience with Secret Origins Podcast, I don't know, like maybe you're an architect or a civil engineer or something, <laughs> allow me to explain exactly what it is we're talking about. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe, or in this case, possibly a building or a cave. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And if you assumed none of those stories would be narrated by a mountain, you were wrong. So, Mike, my question for you, and you sort of already answered this, but is the Secret Sanctuary your favorite JLA headquarters? You sort of already answered that, but how do you compare it to something like the Watchtower, the Satellite, or or even the Hall of Justice? I'm going to say... Again, the satellite is probably my numero uno. I cannot turn my back on the initial satellite of the Bronze Age. But if you were to compare it to, say, the invented for Super Friends Hall of Justice, I am going to side a bit more with the Secret Sanctuary. In fact, the very first coverage I did for Brave and the Bold, I do like the description that they use as a ultra-modernistic sanctuary for these heroes. There's just certain little details that I've been picking up so far from my coverage where it's just like, you know, this place is actually pretty cool. It has like this kind of almost mod 60s style to it, not even with just the equipment, but just even the layout of the actual interior of the actual sanctuary. Yeah, definitely the way Mike Sikowski drew it back in those early issues had that late 50s, early 60s mod flavor. Mm -hmm. And, And I'm with you. I mean... I default to the satellite. Something feels very cool and otherworldly and superhuman, like above it all, about the Justice League being in a geosynchronous orbiting satellite. But there's also something feels very homey, I guess, maybe, about the cave base. And maybe it's just because so many other characters had things like that. The Bat Cave, the Arrow Cave, there was the Challengers Mountain. And I think... Like, half the 80s cartoons that I watched, or like the toy franchises, had bases built up around volcanoes or mountains or something like that. So, something about it feels... uh, I agree. I mean, I like the... There's a cool aesthetic design to the Hall of Justice in the old cartoons, but I like the idea of the cave and the fact that it kept returning to this mountain base. Oh, yeah. Like, I'd say, if you were ranking the three initial headquarters for the pre-crisis era... Obviously, again, as we both established, the JLA satellite would be numero uno. But this, the Secret Sanctuary, is definitely a very solid second. And I'm sorry, I'm a Michigander. I still am a Michigander. But come on. You know what? I even know so little about it. I'm not even sure if they even had an established headquarters facility in Detroit. Yeah, they had something built up by, like, Steele's grandfather or something, I want to say. But I haven't read enough of those issues to really know much about the, the Detroit-era league, so... Getting into more of that whole history of the JLA's headquarters, the Secret Sanctuary first appeared in 1960 in the Brave and the Bold 28, the same issue that introduced the world to the Justice League of America. The origins of the team's headquarters were not disclosed in that issue. In fact, the League's origin was not shown until Justice League of America issue 8, when the heroes first banded together to thwart the Appalachian invasion. 
Sometime after the League's formation, they established their headquarters in a mountain near Happy Harbor, Rhode Island. The series of caves built into the mountain were refitted to include a trophy room, computer room, library, gymnasium, a pool for Aquaman, a workshop, and a general meeting room. The Secret Sanctuary was the Justice League's headquarters throughout the 1960s, appearing in most of the first 77 issues of Justice League of America. In issue 78, the League moved into their satellite watchtower base in geosynchronous orbit 22,300 miles above the Earth. After that, the Secret Sanctuary would still appear in reprints and flashback series. Toward the end of the series' original run, the members of Justice League Detroit moved back into the Secret Sanctuary. In the 90s, the teenage heroes called Young Justice moved into the old base and renamed it the Justice Cave. That's all I've got for the publication history. I don't know if I missed anything. Do you know if there's anything else or if there are any significant appearances or stories about the Secret Sanctuary? You know, I'm actually going to tie into actually one of my first experiences because I distinctly remember the one DC Blue Ribbon Digest I picked up actually featured a reprint of issues 100 to 102. And I remember that may have actually been my first exposure to the Secret Sanctuary because that is sort of their grand reunion as a team. And they actually do meet up in the cave headquarters. So I remember kind of being initially puzzled, but I was like, oh, wait, this was actually the first headquarters. So that was actually an interesting footnote for me as a first-time reader into the team. Cool. Okay, listeners, we are going to take a short promotional break. We will be back in a minute to talk about the origin of the Justice League's headquarters. Don't go away. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances in other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. Welcoming you into my house. 
I've invited loads to my house. Oh. Loads of people come to my house. Oh. They take stuff inside of my house oh. and smoke stuff outside of my house. Secret Origins issue 46 is cover dated December 1989, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was October 24th, 1989. Eagle-eyed fans of Secret Origins might have noticed that last issue had an October cover date. The missing November release was not a fluke, nor was it a publishing error. The last five issues of Secret Origins, of which this issue kicks off, were published bi-monthly. The price of the issue also jumped from $1.50 to $1.75 for 48 pages. The issue was edited by Mark Wade with a cover, if you can call it that, by Elliot R. Brown. Mike, what do you think of this cover? You know, you mentioned the art credit now, and it all makes so much more sense. Because my first initial thought when I saw this cover was, am I looking at an issue of the official handbook to the Marvel (laughs) Universe? Ah, yeah, I mean, it's, this is not an appealing cover. I get the intention, I I get what they were trying to go for, but the execution, I I gotta call this a horrible failure. I mean, you know, it is kind of nice, I suppose, if I was definitely more into architecture to know exactly how many meters certain sections of the secret sanctuary were supposed to be measured at. And the little footnotes at the bottom, I guess, are kind of a cute little touch, even though it really is only the Justice League story that gets a full like footnote handwritten by, I'm, my memory serves me right, it is the Flash that actually writes the yes. note. Yep. But, yep, at least the Justice League gets that little personalized touch on the cover. But really, it's just kind of like, well, if you love building blueprints, man, this cover is going right on your wall. (laughs) And I like these type of things. I always liked reading comics when all of a sudden we get these cross-section cutaways of what the Batcave looks like or what the G.I. Joe headquarters look like. And it's got this full diagram of, like, all of what, like, the barracks is, where's the armory, where elevators lead to what things like that. I like those pages, but... Not as a cover, those were like cool little inserts. Like, this would be a nice little page to have stuck somewhere, like on page 18 of this issue. I remember, like, when I first got this issue, I was like cleaning up, I was getting the remaining issues of Secret Origins that I didn't have, and I got like a bulk of like 10 of them. And I just remember looking, like, I have to pay for this one? <laughs> um, Elliot Brown did do a couple of covers for Marvel and DC, and most of them were actually like almost photo covers. Especially he did some for like Spider-Man and Spider-Woman that were sort of like almost photo collage type of covers or, or feel, felt like they had that photorealism, but not like a painted sort of photorealism, like almost like a photostatic type effect. Huh. Um, and then he did one that was similar to this. It was like a cover of, a, I think, a Nick Fury agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., where the cover just looks like a file folder with like photos of Nick Fury in action, like paper clipped to it. So, again, I, I like that idea. It's cool. It's certainly different, but it's a blueprint that's just the whole thing is just blue washed out. Like, this is just such an easily forgettable cover that it just it doesn't stand out except for in its blandness. So, I, again, I, I like the idea. I think, I think they were going for something clever, but didn't work 
Yeah, you see, I think at that point, you definitely have to bank on the loyal followers of the Secret Origins title at the time, or you had to be a really adventurous soul, because not only is the cover relatively uninspired in comparison to, I'd say, the whole of the series, but you're also raising the cover price with this issue, too. Yeah, so yeah, really. you better be in it for the long haul, or you better be super dedicated to knowing the Secret Origins of all these various locations of your favorite heroes. I think they would have been better to just lie to you and just have the images of the Justice League, the New Titans, and the Legion of Superheroes and just make you think that that's what you were getting. You sort of are, but... Okay, are you ready to tell us the origin of the Secret Sanctuary? I am indeed ready to tell you the origin of the Secret Sanctuary, yourself and the listening audience. So, Ghosts of Stone, presented to us by Grant Morrison, writer, Kurt Swan, penciler... George Freeman, inker slash colorist, Albert de Guzman, letterer, and Mark Wade, editor. Synopsis goes as thus. In Central City, in the year 19XX, Barry Allen cancels another hot date with Iris because of the JLA's first meeting. Barry ejects his costume from the compressed ring, only to see his Flash outfit come to life and leave Barry with a laugh, vibrating out of his apartment. Hooray for spare costumes, though. Barry chases the costume down, stopping when he spots the JLA teammates standing in front of a Green Lantern sphere construct. All of their costumes have come to life. John's costume looking kind of off in that state. Sadly, only Aquaman is left without a costume. No Black Canary Cheesecake for us. John reveals the costumes are possessed by alien minds in connection to a particular mountain on Rhode Island. Green Lantern overcompensates, offering to drill into the mountains, <laughs> but Flash reminds him of vibrational powers he possesses. Flash had better act, because Black Canary points out the possessed costumes have burst from the Green Lantern construct sphere. Darn yellow Flash boots. Flash speeds to and through the mountain, and here is where the mountain starts talking to Barry, and we enter Morrisonville. Long story short, if such a thing is possible, the core of Rhode Island is billions of years old, and it summarizes its birth, the Continental Divide, the rise of the dinosaurs, the passage of time, and a surprise visit by aliens. The vision reveals the ship on Rhode Island and mentions vibration is the trigger. Barry's brain is nearly fried, and he is released by the mountain. The JLA battle their costumes, and John checks on Barry. The mountain is a silica macrochip, and whatever the aliens want can be activated by sound. Thank goodness Black Canary has her canary cry. Green Lantern whips up more vibrations with a ring tuning fork, which stops the costumes dead in their tracks. Aquaman points out the VR playback of the alien landing, where we see the costumes are remnants of the aliens and wanted to pay tribute to their lost loved ones. The costumes are regular once again after the intelligences find peace. Flash suggests a JLA headquarters and nominates the mountain for the sanctuary. The mountain now talks of its memories of the Justice League of America headquarters within it, sadly with Snapper Car intact. But the JLA moves on, and the Flash visiting once more, and all that remains are the new ghosts of memories of the Justice League of America calling the mountain home. All right, thank you very much. 
Morrisonville. Yeah, I think you said it right. Uh, my fr- well, first of all, you, you mentioned the creator credits. Grant Morrison wrote this. Uh, this issue came out in October of 1989. That month, he had this story published, his regular issue of Animal Man, his regular issue of Doom Patrol, and also the Arkham Asylum graphic novel that came out. Like Those all came out within a span of like three weeks of each other. Uh, oh. So, yeah, he had a, he had a busy, <laughs> busy like summer. Um, what did you think of the story in general? You know, this is actually kind of a treat because when I actually opened up the copy – and I saw the title of uh, Grant Morrison as the writer. It just made me go, this may be actually the only time I talk about Grant Morrison in connection with the classic Justice League of America at any point of my recording. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of a nice treat because my Justice League of America fervor, as you will, really kickstarted. And I was collecting regularly when Grant Morrison actually launched JLA in the 90s. And it was just such a nice kind of bit of a personal continuity to return to that creator. And, you know, a lot of people kind of give a lot of, I don't want to say guff towards Kurt Swan's art, but I always have a soft spot for Kurt Swan. So it was exciting to see his depiction of the post-crisis origin of the Justice League of America. Except, and I'm going to actually inquire on you, was this art really even recognizable as Kurt Swan? I actually took a bit of time before we recorded to actually try and look up George Freeman's credits. He just almost renders Kurt Swan almost completely unrecognizable. And that was kind of one of my first thoughts, too, because I looked at this, I was like, really? Kurt Swan drew this? And part of me is, I, I think kind of just automatically I have a bias against Kurt Swan at this period because I think of him as the guy who got booted off of Superman after 30 years because they wanted the John Byrne rebooted look. I kind of automatically think of Kurt Swan as over the hill and past his prime during this period without any actual evidence to support that. So I was looking at this and I was like, wow, this is really strong artwork. You know, I, I think he was still pretty strong. But then I was like, you know what, George Freeman... And he was an he was an inker. He was a colorist. He did a lot of his own work, but I I think he had a much heavier hand in this, and it shows. And no, I mean some of the figure work I don't recognize it as Swan. I mean there are some of the softer features on on Dinah I can kind of see it, but uh, the, the inking is pretty heavy on this. Yeah, I mean it's not quite the time period. But I'd almost describe his inking style as maybe a little bit even stereotypical 90s because there's just a lot of really almost kind of superficial line work yes, in his is. inking. Yeah, like and even like on the first page when you got Black Canary being thrown upside down and these weird lines on her cleavage that just – I get the motion that he's going for, but it just it makes her seem old and wrinkly and it just – it doesn't have the effect that I think he wants it to have. And we see those kinds of lines on a lot of the faces throughout the story. Oh, yeah. I mean, my first indicator was definitely seeing his uh, close-up on Iris Allen for the uh, Barry Allen introduction. It's just sort of like, does she really need that many lines on her shoulder area for her clothing? It's almost like her clothes are just in constant motion at that point in time. (laughs) And these few, I mean, uh, yeah, I think they're... Freeman overdoes it. You're right. I can see sort of this feels like, you know, sort of proto 90s, not certainly to the extreme of that, but you, you see where it's heading. However, that being said, I still, I really liked the art throughout this. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you do get enough of the solid Kurt Swan mechanics. And yes, you know, I do kind of agree that maybe this was a point where he was kind of winding down a bit. But he still had it in him. Like, I fondly remember, I think it's actually Adventures of Superman 500 where he contributed. No, actually, it's Action Comics 700 that he contributed a segment to. And he still had his nice, recognizably clean style. So Mm -hmm. it's not like Kurt Swan really, in my eyes, ever really lost it. Right. Like, say, in comparison, maybe, say, Carmine Infantino during the later stages of his sure. career. Yeah, yeah. But I do have to say, at least for the opening page, and this is actually a theme that's connecting over to what I've been reading. This, uh, I guess, opening splash page for the story, this reminds me a lot of the secondary covers they would have for Justice League of America stories. And there's a side of me that goes, this would have made an awesome era-specific Justice League of America, either introductory cover or a secondary cover. I had the exact same note. Like, I turned this and I was like, this feels like what the opening splash page would have been in those classic Mike Sikowski, Gardner Fox stories. And, like, not just that cover, but, like, throughout, like, this, the story itself feels very Silver Agey, but through the Morrison filter, which is dealing with these really high concept, you know, he's he's definitely in his mushrooms phase right now, but (laughs) it still has that feel of like an early 60s. And and yeah, like that first image with the Justice League members fighting their own costumes, the title Ghosts of Stone, and just this crazy little word balloon that just says, but first tell me your story. It's like... (laughs) Uh, I'm bought in. I want to turn the page. Where, where is this going? What is that? It's it's such a great line. Just tell me your story. It's it's it brings you in, and and Grant Morrison is really good at that. Just sucking you into this world really early on. Yeah, great first page. Yep, and there was another tangential nerd tie I had to this as well. When I actually just glommed onto the concept of animated costumes, the other thought that kind of loaded to my head was, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of that episode of Real Ghostbusters where it was sort of a <laughs> pseudo-sequel to the actual Ghostbusters film. It explained why they're not wearing their original uniforms anymore because it was with Gozer possessing their <laughs> costumes. <laughs> nice, yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's a cartoon that I need to revisit someday. Moving on, like a few, just kind of going in order, a few moments that I really liked. Uh, on page four, that fourth panel, it's just a super close-up of Barry's face and his eyes wide as he sees the league, you know, and, and like you get the speed lines kind of like racing around him. And it's so kind of, I think it's deceptively simple, but it's a great easy way of conveying that he's not just, like his reactions are super fast. It's not just how fast his feet move and carry him, but his reactions that he's probably seeing these guys from like, I mean, however however it takes like light to to travel to get to his eyes from where these guys are and the fact that he's reacting and like skidding to a stop in front of him i just really like that close-up of his face with his eyes wide it's not like it's not shock it's not surprise it's not disbelief it's just a recognition that hey those are my friends why is aquaman almost naked (laughs) (laughs) well i that is actually the one artistic flub on that page that i just also had to take credit for because with the initial costume chase you know, aside of the fact that, you know, there's a side of me that's sort of like, this is kind of aping Silver Age storytelling, so of course it's not going to be super detailed, but it's sort of like, man, if only I could have seen a little bit more of that chase. But then there's that one panel where they actually show the costume and Barry running through Central City, and it's sort of like, wow, they must be running so fast they bled the color completely out <laughs> of its citizens, because the background figures in that panel are just completely stock white. And- yeah. 
Yeah, I know. Speaking of that, Green Lantern's boots are white throughout this story. Um, I don't know. Maybe Tom Kamaku spilled some uh, jet fuel <laughs> on his green boots, and that's why he had to change for time. I think they bleached. <laughs> yeah, that was like the fact that they all have just exact duplicates of their costumes. Like, really, why Martian Manhunter is a shapeshifter? Why would he need a duplicate of his costume? Why would he need the cape anyway? You um, know, there was details in like duplicate costumes. I really appreciate, like the fact that. Uh, for example, Dinah's costume. The fact that her wig is actually partially animated with her costume. <laughs> that was just a really awesome touch. I like that a lot. But you've got all these fully formed costumes. And then you have Martian Manhunter's costume, which is just essentially one giant cape, chest straps, and boots mm-hmm. at that point with shorts. Uh, it's unfortunately not one of the most dynamic images that you have. It's almost sort of like watching... <sighs> Not quite to the extreme of watching a person trying to fight an invisible man at that point, but it's really not far removed just from the Mm -hmm. scarcity of his costume. Right. And actually thinking about Dinah's wig being part of the animated costume, this creates a little bit of a continuity gaffe because when JLA Year One would be published after that, that story would have to take place after this one because they're already moving into the mountain base when that story is established, like when that story takes place. And they don't realize that Dinah wears a wig until like issue eight or nine of that series when she when they all kind of reveal their true identities to each other. So at this point they well, I mean maybe Hal is just like the most dense character on the team, which is <laughs> definitely possible. Well, he's taken a lot of clubs to the back of the head in his own book, so, (laughs) you know, I hate to make any concussion references, but still, let's just face it, you know, Hal may have had his uh, wit kind of dulled from such cranial assaults. That's true, that's true. Okay, I had one of my notes, Grant Morrison does it again because he also wrote The Secret Origin for Animal Man back in issue 39, and that also opened up with just landscape shots of a mountain and sort of talking about like the history of the world and all of these changes and everything. Like, this was just something that he wanted to write about because once we get into the origin of this base and you went through it, we, we go through the Precambrian era, the primordial kind of fiery pit that was the Earth before it had like physical shape and all of this, you know, like millions and he- billions of years of history, all to find out that, yeah, this mountain that <laughs> makes up Rhode Island is... It was actually just uh, what is they call it? a a latticework a oh, what did you what did you say it was or what did Barry say it, well, how did oh it, a silica macrochip yes a silica macrochip what the <laughs> Grant what are you doing it's just a cave it's just a mountain but yeah he makes it so all of a sudden it's got this it's got this sentience and all these things all these aliens want to do is create the sound to do to playback to show basically archival video of their ancestors landing on our planet and this is actually one of the pieces where i actually kind of want to take people that say oh well kurt swan couldn't really design aliens i want to say look at this issue even in the later stages of his career he really upped his game because Mm -hmm. i will admit for most of his silver and bronze age career yeah some of his alien design was it was basically Star Trekky almost, where it's just sort of like you got this humanoid bipedal form. Let's just stick a few like random appendages on their head, color it differently. Put a sideways fin on their head. Exactly. <laughs> but here, the designs of these aliens, it is something really unique and something I never would have expected out of Kurt Swan's uh, artistic 
uh, contributions. Yeah. Like the way I kind of described it is they're almost kind of resemble like maybe my idealized version of the Egyptian god. Oh gosh. Anubis, thank you. Oh, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. More of the jackal one, yeah. Kind of has like a bit of Anubis mixed, but almost with the one woman Kangas in terms of like their actual body shape. Huh, yeah. Yeah, I can kind of see that, yeah. So it was just sort of like, I don't know what switch was flipped for Kurt when he was actually coming up with this. Or maybe Grant Morrison, because I do know Grant does kind of have a history of providing thumbnails for right, storylines. Right. Maybe he sort of gave Kurt sort of that feedback at that time to just really up the weirdness of the aliens, but it works in the story. It really or, does yeah, actually. Yeah, provided a description in the in the script for the panel description, maybe. Yeah. Mm. But they, yeah, they still look really good. I'm I'm happy with that. Uh, on page 13, the second panel up in the upper right, there are two word balloons. One of them seems to be attributed to Aquaman's costume, and the other one to kind of nobody. I think those are just misplaced word balloons. <laughs> hey, I- I'm sure our dear Aqua buddy Rob would say that even his costume is so magical it could talk. <laughs> Probably. The One of the other notes, just in terms of the costuming design... On page 13, we get the the last panel. We get the shot of the early league with Green Arrow and Snapper Carr. Uh, I, yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> we, have, we have Snapper. But what's, what jumped out to me was that Green Arrow, even though he's got the, the, you know, the Van Dyke beard from the Neil Adams redesign, he's wearing his Golden Age costume that was appropriate for that era of the Justice League. Yes. But I have the exact same note. <laughs> yeah, but since the crisis in all of these stories, whenever Green Arrow appeared in any of these secret origin stories, he always, I think, like started off in the Neil Adams redesigned costume. I don't think we ever saw him in that old costume. Yeah, I actually was trying to search for details because I'm like, well, maybe it's laid out like the Neil Adams costume, but it just has the silver agey coloring at this point. I don't. Th- uh, it's. Not, I don't think so. I mean, it, well, that's that's tough. It definitely looks like he's got the gloves drawn in like the way they are and. It's hard to see some of the straps, whether those are meant to be full, like, the straps of the quiver or anything, or if they're really part of the, the shirt, like, kind of the tunic that he wears overneath. Eh, that's tough call. I, I'm pretty sure that's the Golden Age costume. But yeah, it, you are right. It is definitely an odd mashup of kind of retconning and kind of counter-retconning <laughs> at the same time. In terms of the story and what they discover that there is... To, a, to the extent that they are even able to process it, and I, I don't think they even really grasp it, only we do because we're reading the story, there is a consciousness to this mountain. And I think that gives the story a bit of sadness that, you know, it there's a loneliness to it because it's describing these people that come into its life very briefly because, of course, this thing is millions or billions of years old. And in the time frame, you know, these guys are there for a couple of years or something and they go out. But anytime there's some sort of like sound or vibration, it might trigger one of these little like playback things. And it will get like this visual ghost of these people like running through the halls of these caves. And the way it speaks, the way it tells the story to us, there's a there's a melancholy to this that the people found this base and then abandoned it. But it's also going to outlive them by billions of years so i don't i don't know i just i found myself kind of feeling a little bit sad a little bit when i got to the end of the story no i mean uh you do get that sense of sadness but it's sort of like that <laughs> otherworldly well 
he may have had like not only just a bad case of the shrooms, but you know maybe he had like some spoiled fruit at the late night that Grant Morrison was writing the island portion of the story. <laughs> but that last, like very last page or two, yeah, you definitely get sort of like that big emotional kind of. I don't want to say catharsis, but definitely that buildup that, yeah, you do identify more with that island. I think maybe it's just because we're not dealing with such, I guess, grandiose concepts as passages of millions of years. It's just this one little slice of life, and I think that kind of fits in more of like the human condition, if Mm -hmm. you think about it. And I guess also I should say, you know, just so that doesn't get so serious here, there was that one panel where I was actually getting excited because, oh my gosh, they do have the tiny chair for the Adam for their meeting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, just sitting there on the table. Unused. But it's not just a mixture of Grant Morrison's writing, but again, kind of tying it in with the art. You do really get like that pointed sort of depiction of time as it's going on, like, I think there's like that spread of two panels, one where it's like the Flash actually visits the Mm -hmm. sanctuary again, and then the next page is just that same corner, only it's just completely dark, or at least, you know, without having it be a pitch, yeah, without having it being a pitch black panel and taking a cheat. Yeah, it's this feeling of kind of loss and abandonment that the fact that the people, the lives on Earth sort of give this place a sense of purpose, a sense of identity. I don't know. It kind of it makes me think about weird things like my home or like a, a house without people in it. it. That's not a house, really. And and how we how we define things by our presence and and what's what meaning we give to supposedly non sentient, non living things just by the way we interact with the environment. So, God damn it, Grant, making me doing all these weird head trip things. <laughs> I didn't need to think about it. This is a stupid Secret Origins comic. Why am I thinking about this? <laughs> um, one of the other things I thought, uh, just the the concept of this, though, kind of like a part of the Earth having this mind and beginning with the sort of all of the meteorites and crashing into the Earth as it's still forming. Darwin Cook kind of did the same idea in The New Frontier, only the meteorite that crashed was sort of became malevolent and it eventually evolved into Dinosaur Island because uh, that's what they end up fighting by the end of it. But it had the same kind of consciousness, like it was this alien being kind of trapped in the rock as it, as it crashes in there millions of years ago. No, I could definitely see the connection there. Uh, I don't think it's quite intentional, but you know. Right, right. It's, it's kind of the nature of the beast with the medium. I mean... Sometimes, you know, ideas just happily kind of button to each other at certain times. But, I mean, even if we were just going back to maybe the potential origins, I could say they both even owe kind of a debt to maybe Jack Kirby with sort of his sort of exploration of, you know, Eon's past and what may have come before. Except for Jack, it was just kind of more of like an exotic setting, but... And in this story, Grant does kind of give this setting more of a emotional resonance mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. The characters are all written really well. I mean, they're all again they feel true to the Silver Age nature of them. They're just good buddies. You know, they're not bickering and squabbling like the Marvel heroes would do. You know, they're all on the same page in that in that typical kind of. Gardner Fox over, you know, you can, uh, that's kind of a trope of the Justice League of America books that you're 
actually covering on your podcast is a lot of the times you could swap word balloons and attribute them to different characters and it doesn't change the story because they all kind of speak with the same type of voice. Oh, yes. I mean, for the initial block of 77 issues, it is just going to be sort of like, well, these characters are basically <laughs> mostly interchangeable. <laughs> But they all get something to do. They they all have their nice little moments, and I like that part of the story. I think it was well done. Uh, the the one the last thing I have before kind of asking for your final thoughts, I did have one more question. If aliens inhabited the costumes and wore them around to fight, I don't know that I would ever want to put that suit on again. <laughs> like I, I don't know about you, but I would probably I would probably just throw that costume in the garbage and say I'll make a new one. Well, you know, I'm attributing too many human characteristics to it because I'd like to think I'm an enlightened person and I would be above such piggish behavior. But there's a side of me that just goes, well, if I was the alien that was in Dinah's costume. (laughs) I might keep it. Yeah, (laughs) just keep those fond memories. (laughs) These fishnets, I like these. I take these with me to my other planet. Uh, nice. Um, okay, so final thoughts, big picture. What did, did I? I really enjoyed the story. Oh no! I mean, I definitely enjoyed the story as well. I mean, it did a lot with its fourteen-ish page span. I mean, it really did. You know what? Actually, it does kind of feel like a spiritual inheritor to the Silver Age of storytelling because. I guess it's kind of a cheat that my first really official Justice League coverage was a two-issue story. But at the same point, Gardner Fox could fit a lot of story beats into one issue of his title. And Grant Morrison kind of carried that torch with this story where he was able to fit a lot of story beats into just a mere span of pages. Not even a whole issue. Just a little handful of pages to go on. And like I said, Kurt Swan... To me, he's just one of those definitive classic comic artists. And yes, George Freeman does kind of overpower him a little bit. But it's still recognizably classical in style, although built with some uh, modernistic touches. Like, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, and I'm sure Shag would definitely notice this as well in the book, the fact that two particular panels... Dinah's cleavage, I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen Kurt Swan kind of highlight this before. So, (laughs) yeah, that's a pretty uh, not too difficult on the eyes for those particular panels. And I also enjoyed the fact that Grant Morrison did kind of, I don't want to say pick on the tropes, but definitely give credit to the tropes of the So Rage. For example, the yellow weakness at all. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of surprised that the sphere containment that he has for the costumes lasted so long when Dinah points out, oh, yeah, Flash's boots are yellow. (laughs) Yeah, really. It's sort of like, I mean, I guess it was an alien didn't realize that at first, but... Okay, yeah. I like to think of it as the Looney Tunes effect, where it's just sort of like only then they point it out and then the opposite (laughs) action occurs. Yeah, it's only when you look down that you realize you've been running for 50 feet over a canyon. (laughs) Although I do have to give one warning to one listener of the show, and that is Rob Kelly. Aquaman, this is not one of his strongest showings. I mean, yes, ladies, he does show up in the buff for the most part. (laughs) But he does kind of come out, I'd say, more so on the losing end of his battle because, yes, he's whining about the fact that he's running out of water. Mm-hmm. Aquaman didn't get a lot of good showings in Secret Origins at all. Like, 
didn't even get his own story and when he appears in this one and in issue 32 it's not a good moment for him so so you know we can't win all those battles at least you should be thankful that even with this screwy post-crisis version of the original justice league which yeah i'm just gonna say my piece right now is probably not one of my favorite versions of the original justice league but still he does at least get included in those ranks so i can't fault him too much true uh what other stories would you recommend for early era justice league of america whether it be collections or individual issues what else should people look for if they like this story and they want to know more about early justice league well, you really can't go wrong, I would say for sure, with the first, I'd say, three or four showcase editions of the Justice League of America. I think actually the Fox Sikowski coverage stops at volume four. But if you're really curious about like the midst of the Silver Age coverage, those would be the stories for you. Unfortunately, again, it's going to be a completely different Justice League than what you're reading about in this issue because, hey, you got the big seven in those teams. But still, the heart and soul are definitely in those issues. And as Ryan mentioned as well, uh, JLA Year One, it is sort of like the, I guess, retrofitted but still definitive origin, in my eyes, of this version of the post-crisis origin of the League. You really can't go wrong with that particular storyline as well yeah yeah and i would say those same things get those early issues whether it's the showcase presents or if you can find the archive editions certainly check out jla year one dealing with this type of era uh if you can't find those issues we covered jla year one in a big kind of podcast crossover that included the fire and water podcast power of fishnets supermates the lantern cast waiting for doom views from the long box uh, the Idol Head of Diabolu and Comic Reflections. Big crossover spotlighting JLA Year One. Listen to those episodes. Check out those podcasts. And speaking of that, Mike, where can people find you if they want to hear more about you and your podcast? Well, if you want to listen to further adventures of the pre-crisis Justice League of America, you can stop over at classicjla.podbean.com. And I think there's actually a connective iTunes link to there. The basic goal is to cover the entirety of those 261 issues and the three annuals, except in a unusual random fashion, whereas I cover eras and then pick issues at random from those eras. Right now, right in the midst of this era that was covered in the book, essentially. But next up will be the Satellite Era, and then finally ending off with the Detroit Era, with hopefully plans for a final episode, which should be very near and dear to everybody's heart. All right. Well, Mike Peacock, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. It was great to have you. Pleasure again being here. Thank you again for inviting me on. And folks, we are just getting started on this all-headquarters episode of Secret Origins. For now, we're going to take a short promo break, but we will be back in a minute with the story of Titan's Tower. Don't go away. And when the evening comes, we smile. In 1998, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, and Barry Kitson began exploring the beginnings of the world's greatest superhero team over an epic 12-issue comic maxi-series. And yes, we've just begun. Shh. 
That team was the Justice League of America, and that comic was JLA Year One. In 2016, eight podcasts will come together to cover this series in a single month. That month is JL May. Featuring the Fire and Water Podcast, the Power of Fishnets, Waiting for Doom, the Lantern Cast, Supermates Podcast, the Idlehead of Diablo, Comic Reflections, and Views from the Long Box. Each podcast will cover one or two issues of JLA Year One, and then coverage will move from show to show. It all starts in the Fire and Water Podcast with issues one and two. JL May, an epic month for an epic series. Available where you find all good podcasts. We're back, and we're sort of talking about the new Teen Titans. We're kind of talking about Cyborg's origin, a little. Okay, we're talking about Titan's Tower. And while that might not sound exciting, I am more than happy to welcome Greg Arujo back to the show for this segment. Greg, you previously appeared on Episode 9, talking about the Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy, and Episode 12, talking about the Golden Age Fury. Now you're here to talk about the origin of the new Teen Titans Tower. So I'm sure all of our listeners are wondering, how do you keep getting these plush assignments? Wait, 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 wait. This isn't... Give me these Star Wars. Give me... Wait, you told me we we're going to be talking about Shadows of the Empire, not Teen Titans Tower. It's, it's a little uh. bit Shadows of the Empire. It's... How, how do you think Gizor would have built the Teen Titans Tower? Well, obviously it would have involved, you know, some stormtroopers and, <laughs> and and things like that. But all right, I don't know how I get stuck with these super interesting characters and buildings. But somebody had to do it, so why not me? You know, all all it takes is just you know start a dedicated fan blog for one of these characters, and then that's where you'll be pigeon forever. But. Well, I guess after this, I'm going to have to do a blog about Black Hawk Island. Um, <laughs> obviously, something about the Zoo Cruise Z-shaped tower. Maybe that's it. Maybe I can just focus in on DC's letter-shaped headquarters. So maybe it'll be just two, maybe three if I count. Maybe Lex Luthor has an I was going to say, LexCorp headquarters has definitely been in the shape of an L a couple of times. So, so Titan's Tower has to be at least my second favorite letter-shaped <laughs> headquarters in the DC universe. Good, good. um, Back when I covered Secret Origins Annual number three, I copped to being fairly ignorant of the new Teen Titans. I have tried to read the series a couple of times, and I've just never connected with it. There are elements of it that I really, really like, which is to say there are characters in new Teen Titans that I like, but the stories have never gripped me the way they seem to grip damn near every other comic fan that I have ever talked to. So, what is your experience with the new Teen Titans? Well, to be honest with you, I was late coming to the new Teen Titans. Uh, Growing up when I did, the selections that I ended up having, you were kind of basically at the whim of the spinner rack. So, I never seemed to find the new Teen Titans other than the issue number 22 was the first one that I found, and it had Brother Blood on it, and that was the first one that I read. However... The very first Teen Titans story that I must have read was the Christmas story that was in the DC special tabloid, Christmas with the Superheroes, okay, and uh, the Filmation cartoon. So I prefer – well, I don't want to say prefer, but I I think 
my Teen Titans would have to be the original crew. Okay. And kind of like you, I, I wanted to like the new Teen Titans, but they never really connected with me. I mean, I read it every once in a while. I would get bored. I'd stop, give it another shot, and you know, it would go on and off pretty much the entire time that I've been reading comics. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I don't know why. I must just be a George Perez hater. That must be it. <laughs> well, I don't know. There's a certain something about, they say that the sidekicks or the, the reader, when the readers were kids, were their identification. I guess I always wanted to be Batman and part of the Justice League and not necessarily Robin and part of the Titans. That's kind of where I come down to. I love the idea of the sidekicks. I love kind of the novelty of it. I, well... The thing with me, particularly, if you have a bunch of teenagers, they never seem to act like teenagers, no. except for maybe if you kind of squint and look at the Haney version. I mean, right. it's but they were always so gosh darn serious in the, the Marv Wolfman and Perez series, and it was kind of a turnoff, quite frankly. Even, you know, obviously they were trying to reach that X-Men crowd, but X-Men, even despite the anti-mutant hysteria, they, right. they had a little bit more humor and it was easier for me to connect with and i'm not even a huge x-men fan either Mm -hmm. i'm a monster i don't like the titans a whole lot i don't like the x-men a whole lot and i said that i i like the idea of the sidekicks i'm not actually sure if that's true maybe it's just robin because i've never cared that much about speedy or aqualad even kid flash there are you know certainly there are stories with those characters that i love there are ideas of those but i like you know, one thing that I thought was a missed opportunity mm-hmm. was when Dick was Batman for a while. Mm-hmm. And obviously, while he was still the Flash, I mean, obviously, at that point, they were the two sidekicks that actually made it to the big leagues. Even Donna Troy was Wonder Woman for a while. And I always wanted to see that story where they would talk about how, hey, yeah. we're the show now. We're the ones that are in charge of the legacy. Yeah. I never got that. At least I don't think so. I'm sure there must have been, but for the life of me, I can't remember what it might have been. I don't know. I have no idea. So, uh, Getting back to the Titans Tower in particular, looking at its publication history, well, the Titans Tower first appeared in issue three of New Teen Titans, cover dated January of 1981, but actually released in October of 1980. Initially, the heroes were invited to the giant T-shaped building on an island in the East River with no knowledge of where it came from or who built it. The secrets of Titan's Tower, secrets further expanded upon in the story we're about to discuss, were revealed in issue 7 of New Teen Titans. That issue included a cutaway diagram of the Titan's headquarters, as well as the resolution of Cyborg's conflict with his father, Dr. Silas Stone. After that... Well, it's a building. It's the Titans' base of operations, so chances are it appeared in a lot of new Teen Titans stories. Unless the group was out in space or in another dimension, they probably spent some time in Titans Tower. That's all I feel the need to say about its so-called publication history. Uh, Were there any other noteworthy appearances that you know of? Did it ever get blown up like the X-Mansion? Uh, well, twice, actually. Okay. Um, once was in New Teen Titans, the Baxter series, issue number five. Trigon destroyed it. Okay. And they rebuilt it. We can go over that a little bit later. And uh, ultimately, during the Wildebeest hunt or Titans hunt or something along those lines, it blew up again and they didn't rebuild it. They just left it? Yeah, pretty much. Huh? They're just leaving uh, a rubble on an island in the middle of uh, an open waterway. Must have been reassembled at some point because I know they were there during the Jeff Johns era. Uh, but the Jeff Johns era, I believe, was in San Francisco. 
Ah, oh, okay. I think I think at one point they did rebuild on the island, but they ended up using a, a hologram, and I think that was during the Devon Grayson period. It all starts to blur together. It's a building. You're right. That okay. That makes more because for some reason I and uh, for some reason I had this confusion where I thought the Titans Tower was a West Coast thing until I looked at the story again. So I wasn't sure where I was getting that mistaken impression. Okay, that's that would explain that. All right. Okay, well, with that bit of confusion there, and I'm sure... One other little thing. Technically, yes, New Teen Titans number three is when it first appeared, but it also was in DC Comics Presents number 26, which was the sneak peek. I mean, if you go chronologically, New Teen Titans number three is the first real appearance of it. I mean, the first story-wise appearance of it, but it appeared a few months beforehand. Oh, it did appear in the mm-hmm. in the preview? I need to take another look at that. I don't remember that one. Well, are you ready to tell the listeners the story of Titan's Tower? Certainly. Right. Tower in the Sky, the secret origin of Titan's Tower. The editor is Mark Wade. The colorist is Adrian Roy. Letterer is Janice Chang. The artist, Vincent Girano. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And making his secret origins debut, <laughs> Marv Wolfman, co-creator of the new Teen Titans. <laughs> All right. Returning from something... A handful of Titans discuss how much they love living in Titan's Tower. They really love Titan's Tower. As the Titans pass through the handful of security devices, Nightwing and Cyborg discuss the excellent job Dr. Stone, Cyborg's father, did when he designed the tower. While the other Titans go off to do something, Cyborg runs an unnecessary computer system, since the system always is running correctly. Victor thinks back over his difficult history with his father, how his father saved his life by turning him into the cyborg after a lab accident and critically injured him and killed his mother. Knowing his time is short, the dying Dr. Stone wants to leave his son somewhere to call home and begins to design a T-shaped tower. Fortunately, before Dr. Stone dies, he and Victor manage to patch up their differences and the newly formed Teen Titans now have a headquarters they can call their own. The story concludes with Cyborg entering the Titans conference room, reaffirming to his teammates that everything at the tower is okay. After all, Cyborg's father built it. The end. All right. So. I told you it was going to be short. And I know. it's. And it, I had the weirdest thing when I got to the story. It's 11 pages, and I felt like it was too long. Here's how it breaks down. You're right. It's exactly 11 pages. Three and a half pages are framing device. Two pages are Cyborg's origin. And five and a half pages is the actual tower origin. There's a lot of padding in this 11-page story. I mean, really, the secret origin of itself is only five and a half pages long. Mm -hmm. And we kind of talked about this, and I've mentioned it before. Cyborg's a popular character. He was then. He still is now. He, he had the he's a super friend. Yeah, and he's at the height of his popularity. They have announced a movie about him in the future that might happen. It might not. I don't know. But people know who this character is, and Cyborg did not get an origin in this series. Now, However, he did get his origin told three times up until this point. And <laughs> yeah. He, he gets his origin in... Issue, I think it's nine. I'm sorry, issue number seven. Yeah, seven. Then he gets it in Tales of New Teen Titans, the miniseries, um, which recounts the the new character's origins. His origins told in the first issue of that. It's kind of briefly gone over here. And then during the new 52 era of DC, and they had their secret origins uh, series. 
Marv Wolfman wrote the origin for that one, too. So Wolfman has told this story four, four times. times, at least. At and least four times. I think he gets a chance at every start of every you know right. storyline. I, I think Wolfman makes it a point to remind everybody how Vic becomes cyborg. And maybe you reach a point of diminishing returns... I don't know. This story here was the third in that case, and it feels like he's, I mean, he's just giving us the basic beats because that's not the story he wants to tell. He's really telling the story of Dr. Silas Stone, who wants to give something else to his son. The problem of it is, you're right, he wants to give his son something, but we really don't get a sense of the relationship between Dr. Stone and Victor. We don't know the contentious history about it. I mean, it's detailed in Tales of the New Teen Titans number one, but coming into this issue cold, we don't – I mean, there's a, hey, go see that origin story in that miniseries, you know, editorial box. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who would have picked this, you know, up cold back in 1989, they're not necessarily going to know – that type of backstory. I don't think even I knew that. And then I just recently read that cyborg origin story. I mean, his father was almost a monster to his son. Mm-hmm. And so in the secret origin, it almost sounds like, you know, Victor's blaming himself for the poor relationship that his father had with him. But oh, I think uh, Dr. Stone gave as good as he got. Yeah, you really it really helps to see that situation play out in a more linear fashion. To like just see, take, yeah, to take see the, the hatred. Story, when you take the story as it's just the segment that it is, the 11 pages that it is, the reason why we think that Victor hates his father is because – and obviously you didn't want to be a cyborg. And that's right. the beginning and, the, and ultimately the end of the, the conflict between father and son. And there's not even a hint of anything else. Yeah, if you get back into their real history, like they never got along, even when they never got along. Yeah, they, he didn't support him in his sports. Right. Um, he and his wife were experimenting on Victor, mm-hmm. and and it, so you can look at this last act of Silas Stone's creating this tower, giving what should be a base of operations, a second home, something that should be impenetrable. I mean, that's sort of what Wolfman is going for, that all of these security measures, it's a way of keeping his son safe after he dies. And you can look at this as an act of repentance or redemption, like knowing that he's about to die because he's sick throughout this and he's kind of racing the clock. He wants to do one last good thing for his son before he dies. And But I don't know if that really connects. And it doesn't because, once again, just taking this story by itself, we don't know any of the stuff that happens beforehand. So mm-hmm. this final gift that he gives his son, here, you can have the house. That's the extent of it. I don't know if it actually connects on on any real type of emotional level. And I went back and I looked at like Teen Titans issue 7 and even that felt rushed. Like mm-hmm. it's it's almost it's an epilogue that's like the last 6 or 7 pages of issue 7. Like it's after the main fight is over when Victor and his father come back together and they hate each other at first and we find out Victor's origin everything and then he knows that his father's dying and they they come back together and they have this moment of reconciliation and then his dad is gone. And both of these times when I've wanted Wolfman to really dive into this meaty relationship between father and son, where there's real anger and resentment here, I feel like both times he's he's gone out of his way to give us very little to grab onto. Like, these are really short stories. And this could have easily been a four-part four part story. Mm-hmm. I mean, a two- or three-part story. You're right. Each time that uh, Wolfman tells this story, 
in during this particular era, um, it always feels shortchanged. You you get part of the story, and and it's there's years between the different pieces. You get the little bit at the beginning in issue number three, and then up to issue seven, you get them sniping at one another. Victor's father dies in issue seven, and then I can't remember how long afterwards uh, that the Tales of the New Teen Titans series came out, but you know it's got to be at least a year. Then we get a little bit more. Then we have to wait another like five, at least five years, to get this last part. Right. And reading that again. Looking at, you know, it, it kind of felt like maybe at the time Marv Wolfman was just trying to get Silas off the board as quickly as possible. Because whenever he was there, I mean, Victor, you understand when you get the full story, you understand why Victor has so much rage and so much hatred in him. But until you get that story, and you're right, it just that's not. It feels like he's being ungrateful for the fact that he saved his son's life. Yeah, he saved him and gave him superpowers or whatever, and yeah, Victor's an ass to his father, and you're right, it, it's like three years before we get that real origin story where you find out all of the baggage and the reason that these people had, like, were so conflicted and it's like, boy, I really would have been nice to get that context first because it makes me sympathetic to Cyborg in a way that I wasn't in the first yeah, couple exactly. issues. Yeah, I, I would agree completely about that. I mean, you, you just feel like he's being a jerk to his father. And it does help to get the full story. And Cyborg's story, his his origin, his genesis, is really, really fascinating. Um, I remember talking to Diablo Frank about this a long time ago. And he was critical that Victor essentially had no agency in his creation. He's a technological character. He's tech-based. But unlike a Tony Stark or something, he didn't create that, so he can't fix any of that. He doesn't have ownership of those things. But I've never really thought of him that way. And he, I mean, Cyborg says it frequently in his first couple of appearances. He's a robotic Frankenstein monster. Yeah. And that is the what you look at, is that he he was kind of, burst into this world with these new abilities and this horrific appearance without consent. You know, he he had no ownership of us. So he does kind of come off as a, a monster, and his father isn't there for him after the fact. He, he, there's this rejection. So that's the aspect of the character that I've always liked, of being an artificial or just not being entirely human, of having that distance because then everything that he does, every choice that he makes is a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Because it's the, it's the choice of somebody who maybe freedom and, and free will and choice mean more for somebody like Cyborg. Or maybe less. I don't know. If, if you don't have, if you're kind of given that, if you're put in that position through, you know, I, I, I don't know. What do you think? I really don't know, to be honest with you. I... I... He's a character I definitely, you know, I definitely find interesting. I just, you know, I've enjoyed his appearances in throughout the years. But, yeah, I always felt like, well, maybe we're entering a new period. I mean, he's getting his own rebirth. He's in part of the whole rebirth part of DC. So maybe he'll finally get that agency. Yeah. And that's another thing, like the, the sort of modern interpretation of Cyborg that I don't like the fact that, well, and I, I shouldn't say because... I honestly, I haven't read enough about him in the New 52 era, but it feels, based on you know what people like Jeff Johns have said in interviews, that he's sort of the walking internet, and he's this information broker, and, and, he, and he's basically Oracle who's able to fight. He's also the, the uh, transportation, as he right. had the yeah, mother he's, box, yeah, transporting he's got, the team to various locations. Right. 
and maybe this is just you know my bias. I I don't like that as much as I like the more traditional where he's just he's just an augmented man. He's just like the six million dollar man. He's got yeah. these cybernetic enhancements that make him superhuman. That make him be able to go toe to toe with the Justice League members. But it feels like the new version. They're like, no, he has to be a little bit more. He needs to be the bleeding edge sci fi hero. Like, what would Warren Ellis do with this character? Like, oh, that. God. Now I really want to see that. <laughs> I kind of I do would too. imagine it involved cursing and smoking. <laughs> now, never before have I wanted to, uh, a Warren Ellis cyborg more than I do at this particular moment. <laughs> Damn but it. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. I'm going to be thinking about that. Oh, yeah. Find him, find him on social media and ask him. <laughs> so. I, I, would, I, I fear the response. <laughs> Uh, what did you think about the art in this story? Dreadful. I knew that I knew this artist. I knew that I recognized the name Vince Girano. And then I looked up it on Mike's Amazing World and I saw that he had also done the speedy Nightwing story in Action Comics Weekly mm-hmm. that I hated. And then I remembered – and I looked further and then I remembered that he was the artist on Shadows of the Bat – that I hated. <laughs> yeah, he's never been particularly a favorite of mine. Um, only recently have I – I've been reading some Batman collections and I've been – I'm beginning to slowly appreciate his art a little bit. But mm-hmm. this looks like something that was hacked out over – and I hate to use the word hack, but done over the weekend. It's got some of the things that I hate most. I mean – First of all, there is no clear image of the Titan's Tower throughout this entire story. <laughs> Not one. It's either being constructed or it's always in shadow and silhouette. Yeah. So, not certain what was going on there. Then, I counted it up. There's like 53 panels in this story. Okay, it comes down to this. There are nine panels with the tower in it. It seems, you know, it's like 17% of the secret origin of the tower. And 21 of those panels don't even have backgrounds in them. I hate it when uh, there's a lack of backgrounds. Yeah. Even minimal it would be okay. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm looking at one right now, which is the uh, the surgery. Dr. Stone is operating on uh, Victor, and it's just black. Mm-hmm. I bet he did the inks, too. So hey, He's credited as artist, I think. Yeah, just artist. So... so. I actually, I kind of, I see a distinction because like pages eight and nine, when we just have him kind of out in the woods outside of the thing and him talking to the construction crew, I think those pages are fine. It's really, it's when he's doing more of the action stuff and the superhero stuff that I just don't think he has a fit. I don't like the way he draws any of the Titans or their costumes. No, not at all. The more basic kind of mundane day-to-day stuff, I think, is fine. He 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 conveys it well. There are a few pages or a few images of Silas Stone's face where I'm I'm getting the emotion. I'm getting sort of a, a sense of desperation there, and I think they're fine. But when he has to do more of the superhero type of conventional stuff, that's when it falls flat. And I certainly I didn't need George Perez for this story, but it's a marked difference that I think Tom Grummet. Grummet was doing the art on Teen Titans at mm-hmm. the very same time. So imagine being someone who's reading the regular series, then discovering, hey, the secret origin of the tower is in the new issue of Secret Origins. And coming to that, that shift in art is quite jarring. Yeah, yeah. 
However, there is one funny bit. If you look on page two, the second panel, the line of dialogue, whatever's wrong, seeing it makes me feel things could become right. Who's saying that? Well, I was actually, I forgot about that, but I made a note of that. That word balloons certainly seem to be pointing towards Jericho. Yeah, that's, uh, I think it's supposed to be Starfire. Had it been moved over just a little bit, that yep. would have removed all doubt. That that one panel saved this story for me. Right. Well, I mean, it almost has to be Starfire because it's it's like completing her line from panel one. I, yeah, but just to take a to look at it, it's like wait, wait. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It definitely looks like the balloon is heading right towards Jericho. So Jericho ruined things every time that you make an appearance. <laughs> every time you had one job, which was to not say anything, and you couldn't even do that. It <laughs> blew the line. <laughs> You ruined everything with your talking, didn't you? Um, yeah, it, this isn't a good story. Now, and to be completely fair, Wolfman was going through his uh, writer's block at this particular point. You know, we talk about how the crisis on Infinite Earth just destroyed Roy Thomas. I mean, it, the completion of Crisis on Infinite Earth also, you know, drove Wolfman into his infamous writer's block. So, obviously, his heart really wasn't into this. And I, I agree with that. I, I hear that. But I also, I don't feel like I can completely absolve Mark Wade of this, assuming this collection was his idea. Because why did we need these origins? Like, the, the third story, which we'll get to the, with the Legion Clubhouse, I love that story. And that was a secret <laughs> that I really enjoyed discovering. And the story that precedes this, it's a really nice, creative, fun, and interesting story by Grant Morrison, but I don't think it's a story that needed to be told. There's no story to be told about Titan's Tower, obviously. It's, exactly. That's why I said, like, it's 11 pages, but it still feels too long. Like, when you got to it, it could like, have easily when you strip been, out the frame and the cyborg part, you've got four pages worth of material, which is really just four pages of a dying man talking to architects. I'm not saying that's not interesting. You can get some real character drama I, out of this. But we're talking about superhero adventure stories. That's just imagine this story. To, I mean, I hate to to pitch stories for a, a you know nearly twenty five year old comic, right. but just but just imagine that this story was told from the perspective of the architects, the construction guys. I mean, you're building a giant T shaped building in the middle of the east. I mean, I'm not even certain where. Mm-hmm where it is, but um, that's going to gather some attention. I would imagine some supervillains are going to want to take a peek at a building shaped like a T. And how do they not connect that with Jon Stewart, the Green Lantern? Like That's a good point. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and to be completely honest with this story, this isn't even the original tower. This is the rebuilt one. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, you could if you're going to do a secret origin, you could easily have done a secret origin of the second Titan's Tower. Sure, yeah. Frame it with like the new construction. They're rebuilding it, and then you have you know Cyborg thinking about his father and like what ha- how the original one was built or something or, or some sort of comparison. Be- yeah. Or his father's memory imprints are in the computer, and they have to deal with that ghost in the machine type of thing. I yeah, don't know. Yeah. There are different ways to handle this. I mean, even the you know when you read the first bit of the story where they're going through and discussing all the various different security devices. I mean, it almost feels like those that filler stuff in like '90s Marvel annuals where they would talk about the various different things about Avengers Mansion or the Fantastic Four headquarters. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, you know, 
not quite a secret origin, but it would have been a little bit more interesting than kind of the secret origin of a building that was just kind of like built. It's not it's it's not really cyborg secret origin, nor is it completely the secret death of Doctor Stone. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the worst part of it all is. When Victor says at the end, well, I'm sure glad I patched things up with my dad. Like, oh, my God. Uh, that was one of those things I'd rather have seen than be told. Right. Uh, well, what could have been? You know, when I was, you know, I came up with this really short description of the, the story. I, for a little bit, I wanted to take what was there and kind of frame it, you know, change up the um, description of the, the, the segment, uh, the, the synopsis into something kind of like serial where, you know, I would <laughs> – get it from the perspective of the guy pouring the concrete and people in New York wondering what this T-shaped building was. and <laughs> Who has the lean on the land on that island? Well, don't get me started on that because, I mean, quite frankly, if you think about it, you can trade – in New York City, you can trade a few pieces of Brooklyn real estate for an island on the East River. <laughs> I mean, is it zoned for this type of use? I mean, I don't know if, what zoning laws are like in the DCU. I mean, is it a good idea to put your superhero headquarters like where everybody can see it? I mean, there's a reason why the Batcave is hidden and the Justice League satellites in in orbit. I mean, it, it's built on a on a landfill. That sounds like like. Did people ever put two and two together? Did they just? Oh yeah, that's that T building. Yeah, that's that's a new like mobile company. <laughs> it's on a it's on a landfill. They built it on a landfill. That sounds like the secret origins must have been popping up left and right as they hit a new <laughs> level of toxic waste or something buried on that island. <sighs> I mean, is it a good idea to have that type of headquarters on a body of water? Who knows what type of rocket fuel or other crazy stuff that's in that tower at any given time? It gets blown up. Aqualad's not going to be happy. <laughs> Do tourists pop up? I mean, it, it's not that far from – I mean, they, they can ride a sled out to the tower from shore. So obviously, you know, are tourist boats flying – I mean, coming by it on a daily basis? Do groupies try to get onto the island? I would imagine, yeah. And then I can't imagine that the the FAA is happy about jets taking off that island, taking off from that island. <laughs> I don't I, that one little bit about being on a landfill just made me ask so you know just a dozen other questions popped into my head at that point. Well, I think you already spent a lot more time thinking about this story than was ever meant to. And with with all of that it's such a it's such a problematic story that and this is the story I mean Marv Wolfman didn't write anything for Secret Origins up until issue you know took him 46 issues to get here and when he gets here and he's working on the Titans and it's just this ball of lead in the middle of you know two fairly decent stories. Yeah. Should have just, you know, either expanded the Justice League and the Legion story enough or was there not a Blackhawk Island or Challenger's Mountain story waiting to be told? <laughs> oh, I would have so rather gotten those stories. I don't know if this ah uh, uh, I'm not sure if this is the worst story of the bunch. I still, this story didn't make me mad the way Hawk and Dove made me. Hawk and Dove made me mad. I don't know. I read that Hawk and Dove story, and it made me mad for different reasons. Because, I, and you touched on it in the episode, coming in cold because I really didn't follow the story. It meant nothing to me. 
I was lost, and I'm not usually lost when I read a DC or, or Marvel story. I can usually fill in the, the blanks, but that just left me like, what's going on? And I really don't care. This, you know, I had some passing familiarity with the story, and it's just dull. Yeah. And I guess ultimately, dull bothers me more than a bad story. Mm. Just. Each page, each 11 pages were just hard to turn. Well, thanks for being on this episode, Craig. <laughs> I hated to bring it – I hate to bring the episode down. No, luckily we got I'm what? being a little bit more critical about it than I, I probably should. I mean I came into 2016 with the feeling that you know disposable stories are disposable. If I don't like it, I'm not going to dwell on it. But I took the assignment. I knew what I was getting myself into. But, <sighs> but then man – I would have taken, you know, at this point, I feel like I need to have like a another Roy Thomas story to, to wash the, the taste out of my mouth. Well, wait, wait till the Secret Origins podcast reunion tour when I go back through them all over again, starting from number one. <laughs> uh, okay, forget about this one. This story was uh, obviously a failure. Listeners, the next story in this episode is going to be much better, but before we get to that point, we've talked about a number of other Teen Titans stories. We've talked about another a number of other cyborg stories. Which ones would you recommend? I mean, obviously, the first one that I'm going to go to is if you want to know more about Victor and Silas Stone, their relationship, and really Cyborg's origin, Tales of the New Teen Titans, the miniseries, the first issue of that. Yes, I would just get the first year of the New Teen Titans itself, mm-hmm. or just... If you want good new Teen Titan stories, new Teen Titan stories, I would just the Wolfman Perez series is worth reading. It's not my favorite version of the Titans. That would have to be the originals, but it's solid. All right, Greg, where can people find you online if they want to know more about you or hear more from you? Well, if they want to hear my insane rantings, they can find me on Twitter at Giarujo1, where I'll be posting probably some annoying comic book art, uh, comic book house ads, um, and some other things that just pop into my mind during the course of the day. Um, uh, you can find me on Facebook, but Twitter's the better place to find me. All right. Thank you once again for being on one more episode of the Secret Origins podcast. You, you know. You did the work that nobody else wanted to do, my friend. But well, That's what I'm here for. That is my destiny. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Thanks, Ryan. It's a beautiful evening. The moon is just rising. A full moon. It will soon be as bright as day. An ancient evil erupts from the grounds of Supermates' estates. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. Step this way to gaze upon an exhibit absolutely unparalleled in the realms of showmanship. I have a collection of the world's most astounding horrors. Spine-chilling discussion of classic horror films featuring an all-star cast. Boris Karloff. If I had Frankenstein's records to guide me, I could give you a perfect body. Lon Chaney. Last night I suffered the tortures of the damned. I killed a man. John Carradine. I will come for you before the dawn. Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. There is nothing, do you hear me, nothing more important to me than the success of this experiment. Oliver Reed. I can't, I tell you. I can't remember anything. Lawrence Olivier. You are a most uh, unusual creature, Count Dracula. And Frank Langella. 
You do not know how many men have come against me. I am the king of my kind. Plus, your favorite superheroes grapple with the world's greatest monsters. You'll never succeed with your crazy plan, Dr. Frankenstein. That's just what Batman said, Superman. And look where you are now. <laughs> A Supermate's presentation coming in September and October to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The House of Frankenstein has risen from the grave. again for another secret origin of a place or thing. This time we're talking about the clubhouse of the Legion of Superheroes, and my guest knows a thing or two about that because he previously appeared on episode 25 when we talked about the origin of the Legion itself. From the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, please welcome back to the show Lord Martin of Grey. How are you, old chap? I'm not bad at all, thank you, Ryan. How are you? I'm great, I'm great. And really, I'm so happy to have you back. Although, I'm telling everybody, it's a little weird, and this has happened on the show before, but this story was actually the first one I scheduled you for. We arranged this one way back in October. Your appearance on episode 25 was a last-minute fill-in that thankfully worked out great. But this has always been the one that I had in mind for you, so it's great to finally be here. So, tell us... Why did you want to talk about the Legion Clubhouse? Well, mainly not because this is my entire favourite story in the whole of the Secret Origins comic run. And from being a little boy when I first came across the Legion in old adventure comics, well, old adventure comics were about eight years old in the 1970s when I read them. But I had the idea that sort of there was this little super team and they had not just a treehouse, they were kids, they had this clubhouse that was a, a rocket ship as far as you could see and you didn't know what the origin was back then because it was pretty much all invented here. Mm-hmm. And I just love this particular story. It's just, to use you know, Shag's term, it's just comic book joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. And I've read this story twice now. I read it a year, maybe two years ago, and then I read it again just recently in preparation for this episode. And it affected me in a much different way the second time around. And I will explain some of that reasoning after we get into the story. But part of it, I think, is just because I'm, I like the Legion a lot more now than I did when I first came aboard. You know, like before we talked about episode 25, I didn't consider myself a Legion fan. 
I had read the, you know, the three boot, the Mark Wade era and when it became Supergirl and the Legion of Superheroes. I thought it was good storylines, but I I didn't really have that inroad until relatively recently. You know, it's just within the past year that I've started really embracing these characters and the whole mythology of this. And so maybe that's why I I really dug this story too. And and we will get into it certainly in a little bit. But uh, before that, it's hard to talk about the publication history of the Legion Clubhouse because it's a building. And it's been there since their first appearance of the Legion way back in Adventure Comics 247. It's their base. It hasn't always looked exactly the same now. Is uh, And you might have to fill in some of this, but the sort of traditional, the original rocket-shaped clubhouse, was that dumped and replaced by their Legion headquarters, or is it still considered the same place? It's just been modified over time? No, no. In the 1960s, in the middle of the Adventure Comics run, I forget the issue number, but there was a battle with the Fatal Five, and the building was destroyed at that point. Not completely destroyed, because later on the Substitute Heroes came along and thought, let's take over this building. And so they fixed it up a little bit and took over the building, and the new Legion headquarters was built, the one with the huge great Legion Plaza. So no, not not the same building at all. Okay, that's what but I was... it did, th- did vary in size over the years. Yeah, I was thinking that it was... Because I remember the Substitute Heroes at some point had that old base, but I wasn't sure because I also knew that you know, there were stories where this rocket clubhouse sort of got up on robot legs and walked around. So I was like, did they just did it just move from Smallville to Metropolis? I don't know. So. It was very, very liquid slash. They didn't pay much attention. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, without getting into more of the publication history of the base itself, because it's well, for the most part, a stationary object, I'm going to spotlight a few characters who make their first appearance in this issue as Legionnaire tryouts. <laughs> first up, Mnemonic Kid made her first appearance in this issue of Secret Origins, and then never appeared again, so far as I know, and I hope that's not a spoiler. Fortress Lad debuted in this issue, well, sort of. I can't tell you more about that without spoiling the end of the story. The real standout of this issue, the thing that everybody wants to know about, this story in Secret Origins 46 from October 1989 marks the first appearance of Arm Fall-Off Boy. And if that sounds ridiculous to you, what are you doing listening to this podcast? Of all the preposterous, nonsensical notions, Arm Fall-Off Boy has managed to appear in at least five comics. He started in this issue as a joke, but Tom and Mary Beerbaum apparently liked the joke well enough that they brought him back in issue two of Legionnaires, published in 1993. And he showed up again in issues 43 and 49 of that series. And if that wasn't enough, in the comic book series Legion of Superheroes in the 31st Century, which was a spin-off of the kids' animated series, Arm Fall-Off Boy got his own spotlight issue. The untold legend of Arm Fall-Off Boy from issue 16, published in 2008, revealed that he tried to join the Legion to impress Phantom Girl. So I guess Shag was right. She is the hottest Legionnaire. In a sweet but pathetic twist, Arm Fall-Off Boy is rejected for membership, obviously, but Phantom Girl lets him try on her flight ring. He does, and the ring flies off, taking his arm with it. Not the rest of him, just his arm. So, uh, Martin, were there any other notable appearances or stories about the clubhouse that you wanted to mention before we begin? I was having, I was having a little think and trying to find one to recommend, and I was thinking... Oh, yes, in the Baxter series, it was issue 59, Ghosts in the Clubhouse. But it turns out that was set just when they moved into the second clubhouse. 
So okay. I think I'll leave that to our friend, our fellow legionnaires, to uh, tell us about that. But apparently on, on the arm fall of boy front, it seems that he was actually Gerard Jones, the writer of this issue. He was his take, his nod on an old legion fanzine character called Ears Fall Off Floyd. <laughs> and was it the same gimmick, his ears fell off? I believe so, yes. It seems, it seems that it was, yes. Was he able to like put his ears in certain places to spy on people? Like that seems like an elongated man trick where Ralph Dimmy used to have his ears go down a chimney in order to spy on crooks. Oh yes, yeah, wonderful. So I believe I think I think he could. He's he's you know he's not quite up there with sack of potatoes kid, but he's pretty <laughs> darn good. I don't know why he's not part of the Legion of Substitute Heroes. He seems you know ready made for that group. Definitely, definitely. Maybe one day. Maybe. If we get a chance to write the Legion story, that's what we'll do. <laughs> All right, Martin, are you ready to tell our listeners the story of the Legion's clubhouse? I shall get out my Omnicom and give it a go. <laughs> Good. The story is called The Little Clubhouse That Could, and it's by Gerard Jones, Word Kid, Kurt Swan, Pencil Lad, Ty Templeton, Ink Boy, John Costanza, Letter Lad, Tom McCraw, Colour King, Mark Wade, Editor Boy, and Fortress Lad, created by Casey Carlson, who was another editor at DC at the time. So, we open up with the landlords and rare realtors, that's estate agents to those of us in the UK, the metropolis looking worried. The newly minted legion of superheroes is searching for a headquarters, and nobody wants the sort of trouble the 30th century's teenage crime fighters attract. Team backer RJ Brand, the richest and therefore most trustworthy man in the galaxy, says he'll give the team <laughs> space in his swanky complex. But they refuse, not wanting to look like some corporate task force. And at this point, the Legion simply is. It's just Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy and Lightning Lad. So I don't know how much trouble people think they would cause, but apparently quite a bit. So putting their lack of an HQ on the back burner, the founding members focus on building up the team. If you're calling yourself a Legion, it probably helps to have more than three members. So they've put the call out across the universe for superpowered youths to come and try out for one of the member spots in the public park. And first up is Arm Fall Off Boy, the aforementioned. He reaches out with one muscular arm and grabs the other arm and pulls it right out of the shoulder socket. Plop! My power will astound you. Observe as I detach my limb and transform it into a deadly weapon. And he slams the arm on the picnic table in front of the stunned legionnaires. Die, villain! Ha-ya! And yes, that's villain, not villain. Well done, John Kistunza. Unsurprisingly, the Legion thanks Arm Fall Off Boy for his interest and wish him luck finding a group suitable for your talents. He slopes off crushed, and the words of the next applicant don't help. Take a hike, chump. This charmer is mnemonic kid. After failing to teach Saturn Girl, who's taking notes, well, someone has to be secretary and she is the female, how to spell her name, mnemonic kid explains her powers. She uses her ability on people and makes them forget things. Hit them with a small blast and they forget things temporarily. Blast them quick for longer, and it's he I could turn you into a mental infant. Get the feeling this gal may not be Legion material? The founders do when she zaps a passing toddler as part of a demonstration. See, I made him forget where his house is. <laughs> the little brat could wander around forever. Lightning Lad demands she undoes the damage, but she doesn't know how to, and she could not give a flying ring. You could never join our club. Not with such a horrible attitude, says Cosmic Boy, who wears pink. They send mnemonic kid packing, then help the little boy, who might simply be crying due to the horrible ball cut his mother's given him, to find said parental unit. Back to the tryouts, and here's an unusual fellow. He'd give anything to fight for peace and justice alongside the Legion. Meet fortress lads from the planet Fuang. That's Fuang, a world constantly besieged by meteor storms. 
to combat this extinction level threat, and I quote, all Frangian boys at puberty gain the power to become metallic fortresses for the protection of others, he says. He wants to demonstrate, but the founders are already huddled, obviously wondering how to let Fortress Lad, who looks like egg foo in an inflatable suit modelled on a kid's idea of a spaceship, down gently. Of course, even when they're trying, the Silver Age Legion couldn't not trample on anyone's feelings. Cosmic Boy thanks him for his sincerity, but Lightning Lad simply says, We don't see how your power would be of much use to superheroes like us. Fortress Lad slumps off, sobbing, and bumps into Mnemonic Kid, who suggests they give the Legion their comeuppance. But even though he's been rejected, he's not bitter. A little later, Fortress Lad sees the remainder of the applicants wandering past, looking properly dejected, and he wonders if the Legion will give him another shot. He heads back to the picnic area, but another reject is already there, Mnemonic Kid, and she's pointing her purple power at the Legion personages. She's making them forget how to use their gifts. Cosmic Boy doesn't even recognise Imra, calling her this weird girl. Cosmic Boy wears pink. With him defenceless, Mnemonic Kid draws a deadly weapon, pulls the trigger, but Fortress Lad has leapt in front, expanded his form to metal, and saved everyone's lives. The beam doesn't harm him due to his toughened body. Enraged, the supervillain aims her power at Fortress Lad, now much bigger and shinier, his features vanished, with the aim of making him forget to protect the Legion. She pours on the power more and more and more. Inside, Lightning Lad, Cosmic Boy, and this weird girl continue to lose their memories, while poor brave Fortress Lad loses his personality, his sense of self. Have to hang on like a hero, thinks the under siege Fortress Lad. Finally, he holds on to just one thought. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. The Legionnaires 3 emerge and combine their powers to remove Mnemonic Kid's gun, but she throws a grenade their way. Cosmic Boy uses his magnetic powers to stop the grenade in midair. It explodes and takes Mnemonic Kid with it. Good riddance to bad rubbish. The founders can't remember how the rocket building got there. They just know they've saved them, and they feel an inexplicable fondness for it. They believe they've found their clubhouse. The story ends with a big hero shot of the early Legion, in front of their brand new Rocket HQ, and the words, And so, Fortress Lad got to join the Legion after all, although no one ever knew it, because Fortress Lad was left with only a single thought. Never give up. Never give up. Never give up. And that's the secret origin of the Legion clubhouse. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I mentioned at the top that this story affected me much differently the second time I, I read it. Uh, and let me ask you, are you a viewer of Game of Thrones? I've watched about the first series. It's very, very busy. Okay. Um, I'm not going to say in any particular detail. Um, I'm not going to spoil it for you or for any of our listeners who might not have watched or might not be caught up. But people who have watched the first six seasons should probably understand what I mean by this, which is this story felt like the episode Hold the Door. And it's hard to get to the end of that episode without, you know, bursting into tears. Oh, so, I'm intrigued now. Yeah, there's definitely a bittersweet, tragic quality to the story that reminded me of that episode. Um, again, people who know the, the show will know what I mean. What a heartbreaking end. Um, but there's, there's a kind of beauty and grace to Fortress Lad's story. He does sacrifice himself and gets to effectively live out his dream. He he becomes a part of the Legion in a way that they'll never understand, they'll never appreciate, they'll never recognize. But he does it, and and they can't live without him, in effect. And that's beautiful, but also heartbreaking, because it goes unrecognized. So it's... When you said this was your favorite story in the entire Secret Origins run, 
I understand why. This is great. And in, in a way, it also reminds me that the, the final, the, fi- the final phase, the final phase of Fortress Light. It reminds me a little of the feeling I got when I first read this Christmas with the Superhero story, Should All Acquaintance Be Forgot, with yes. Dead Man and Supergirl. The message being the same, you know, it doesn't matter if no one knows that you're a hero as long as you're doing good. Right. And I guess part of it is because these stories exist for us. I mean, the characters don't know, but the characters aren't real. We are the ultimate witness of these sacrifices. So we carry these memories on and we are there to stand for a, a forgotten Supergirl or a forgotten fortress lad and stories like that. And that's no, yeah, I definitely agree. It, there's definitely a connection similar to this, to that. Uh, should all the acquaintance be forgot story. That's one. It's such a good one. Mm-hmm. But uh, actually going back a second, what did you think of the cover to this issue? Oh, I, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I understand what they were going for, but I don't think this is a cover that would inspire anybody to pick up this book if they weren't a regular reader. No, the most boring cover in the history of the run. I mean, yeah. I, I like a nice pin-up of a clubhouse with, you know, with interesting rooms like, you know, the mm-hmm. Atoms Micro Gym or visiting Super Pet Kennels or Interdimensional Teleportation Toilets. So, but this is just super dull blueprint. I mean, I, I know people loved Elliot Brown's blueprints for the Marvel handbooks, but it's just so dull. That's not what you do with a cover. And and I like like the affectation on the bottom with like, you know, the little editorial notes and the paper clips. It reminds me of like that Legion of Substitute Hero special that Cisco and I talked about. But to have like the main image, just this blueprint with just uh, sort of white lines and like small text that you have to squint to read and everything. It's no, this is a I, I don't know if it's the worst cover in the whole series, but it might be. Uh, There's just nobody on there. Yeah, it's like, what are you looking at? Like, what about this would inspire you? Like, yeah, so, yeah, nah, it's a bad one. Uh, getting back to the story, and you mentioned it with the creator credits, Fortress Lad created by Casey Carlson. I don't know who that is. Who's Casey Carlson? He, he was an editor at DC for a couple of years. I think he came from the fan press, I think from Amazing Heroes or one of those type of things, same as Mark Wade. He was an editor on the Legion books for a few years, and the the reason he came up with Fortress Lad is connected to the secret, secret origin of this issue. Okay, do you want to tell us about that one? Because you mentioned that beforehand, and I like that story. Shall we do that? Yes. Well, it turns out that the writer, Gerard Jones, writer of the fantastic Green Lantern Mosaic, please collect DC, Gerard Jones produced an earlier script for this issue, drawn by another gold and silver and bronze age artistic legend, Kurt Scaffenberger. And in this one, the clubhouse was originally a facility sent by Jor-El after his son's tiny rocket ship as an afterthought to give Super Baby Kryptonian essentials such as self-cleaning diapers. But for some reason, it took a thousand years to get to Earth, and amazingly, it landed in the smallville suburb of Metropolis on the very same spot where Superboy's rocket landed in Super Babies, because, of course, Smallville was absorbed by Metropolis by the time of the 30th century. It was a suburb, and... It was found by a shyster who couldn't open it, but he could sell tickets to see the mystery rocket before the Legion discovered its origins after 10 years. It had been 10 years people of Metropolis had been coming to see this thing, and they got bored, and Saturn Girl telepathically sort of thing worked out what the nature of the creation of the rocket was, and R.J. Brand bought it for them. And so in this original story, yes, this is how this became their headquarters, but it was really being just a couple of years after Crisis. Someone said, well, you know, we want to remove the Superboy connection, mm-hmm. and it couldn't have happened like that. So they commissioned the new story, and I believe at that point, Casey Carlson suggested, when they were trying to think of new people who would try and join the Legion, came up with Fortress Lad. 
I think. Or was it Farmer or Fall Off Boy? I've forgotten which it was, actually. Anyway, that one. And, but, I mean, it makes it doesn't make a lot of sense because if in the story that has published, Superboy still appears at the end of it. I know. That, that's one of the things that I've constantly come across in this series is that they're like, yeah, no, Superboy never existed. Well, they keep putting him in Legion stories throughout yeah. the series. Pocket universe shenanigans. I mean, let's not yeah, think no. about it. It's just nonsensical. <laughs> but uh, I was glad to see Superboy there because a, a grouping, that grouping of Legionnaires doesn't look right without Superboy. I, and, I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, where, where Tripica Girl and Phantom Girl were, I don't know. But still, at least Superboy was there. Yeah, because Lightning Lass is there. Or Light Lass. Yeah, indeed. I suppose they were just Phantom Girl without looking for bad boys. Who knows? <laughs> Good point. Yeah, and you showed me that original story, uh, the one that wasn't eventually published. Great story. I, I really got a kick out of reading that, but I sort of understand their thinking and, and wanting to change it, but more than that, I just think this story was superior. Oh, um, too, right? I mean, that, that one was just, you know, it was very much, I could see that appearing as the secret origin of the Legion Clubhouse back in the early Silver Age, because it is so, and here's that word I used on my last secret origin, so pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Whereas this one, it's surprising, it has drama, heart, humour. I mean, I just love it when you have Imra Ardeen unable to dispel mnemonic. Fantastic. <laughs> it's just not around, it's just a better story. I mean, I remember at the time when Legion fandom, it just, we were considering it an instant classic, and yeah. it stood the test of time for me. Yeah, and I think, I mean, for being something that, you know, George, I mean, I don't know what their time crunch was. They might have had to scramble to replace this script, but I think this is one of the tightest, best scripts that Gerard Jones has ever written that I have read, and I've read a ton of his other stuff. But this is just, I mean, he nails these characters so quickly in a way that feels kind of Silver Agey in that, I mean, you just, you get them instantly because he doesn't waste time with a lot of subtlety or drawn-out characterization. It's it's pretty apparent. You see right away how devastating mnemonic kid's power could be in the hands of someone who doesn't have the clearest moral compass. And the Legionnaires pick up on that right away. And that's great. You know, it, it you get the clear dividing line that, no, she does not have the stuff to be one of them. And they see it. And that also helps define them. You see the heroism of Lightning Lad and Cosmic Boy and Saturn Girl because they're like, no, 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 no. What you're doing is wrong. That power is abusive. Absolutely. I mean, if Mnemonic Kid had somehow gone into the Legion, you can bet within a year she would have been traitor within the Legion, lass. Right. There's no way she would have had a long career. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, I was sorry to see her go by the end of this, because I thought she was a really interesting character. I love her look. like the vision, I'm, I'm assuming Kurt Swan designed her whole cloth, but like the way he and Ty Templeton draw her, I think she looks great. I like the idea of her. I'm, of course, I'm always up for any more diversity in the, these casts of big characters. Too, right? So, she, would been, she would have been the first, sorry, she would have been the first Black Legion, and she would have been the first, I think, well, I'm not counting Monel and Brainiac 5, she would have had the first non-gender specific name, I believe, as well. Yeah, even if she didn't join, she could have been a recurring villain. I mean, I would have been fine if she was just, you know, one of their first recurring villains. That would have been, I, yeah, I, I would get that. I, she doesn't have to join the team as far as I'm concerned. I just, Absolutely. I wish there were more stories with her. Yeah, she could, she could be right up there with the Emerald Empress as a real badass evil villain, you know, yeah, male, because, female, who cares, she's wonderful. Because even the end, like, we don't see her death, we just, we get the explosion of the grenade and they're all kind of reacting to it, and then you turn the page, and the next panel, Lightning Lad is saying, she's dead, and it felt, that felt very silver-agey, like either it was a last-minute editorial change, 
or they were kind of like, nope, we can't show violence of any kind against these kids. Like it was almost too clean. And I was, I was like, this book was from 1989. You could show a death scene. Absolutely. So, and, and looking at the panel where the grenade gets exploded, mm-hmm. it seems to be as close to the founders as it is to her. So if she's dead, right. they, they should be dead too. Right. Other than that, other than that little bit. Yeah. I just, I, I wish they could have found a way of salvaging her and keeping her around. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, what else? Uh, oh, not only her, or not only Armful Offway, I want to see stories about all of the weirdos that we see on page three. I know, that, that, guy, that guy with his legs upon his shoulders or whatever, what is his deal? I think, I think Kurt Swan must have just been thinking, you know, these are, I can design some characters, they're never, never going to be used, I can just go bonkers here. He's like double-jointed boy. He's just like, it's, it's yeah. like just people from the circus, but the lady in front who seems to be sort of like a plant-type lady, like Floronic Girl, but she also might have a beard. I, she I don't does know seem to have a beard. I, I made a note. I noted beard. I said. <laughs> so, yeah. The, I mean, each one of these characters has their stories, and if they weren't in the Legion, why weren't they ever picked up for the Legion of Subs? Like, there's so much material here that we're not getting. Too right, and then the guy, the guy with the winged walrus at the back. <laughs> yes. I, just, I mean, one of the other things I love about the splash page here is just the body language. I mean, Kurt Swan's really given what he sends to him was sort of, you know, quite yeah. aghast at what's turned up here. And especially like for this era, for being in the late 80s, uh, the pencils and the artwork are really tight. And some of that might be owing to Ty Templeton helping Kurt Swan out. But the body language, you're right. Even in the next page, when arm fall off, boy rips his arm off and puts it on the table, slams it on the table. The reaction of the Legionnaires is great. How they kind of back up with their hands out. Like, what did we just witness? It and, is wonderful. And I love the fact that they get no dialogue in that scene. They're just like <laughs> sort of open mouth, dumbstruck. Until until she's just, uh, thanks for your interest, but <laughs> wonderful. I love that. Yeah, but I know, I, I think I, when I was, I was reading Action and Action Superman back then, actually, I think Gil Kane was drawing action by then, but Kurt Swan, I would say that, un, you know, unlike some of the artists who come up, like, you know, maybe, maybe Jim Apple or Carmine Infantino, who were still, you know, brilliant geniuses. I mean, their contribution to comics is immense. Mm-hmm. I never saw that Kurt Swan's pencils it fell off. He seemed sort of to be tight to the end. I've seen, I've seen you know, uninked sketches, and it just looks like he never lost it. He just seemed to be a master. I mean, have you ever seen any of his the odd, the odd paintings that you did? I I don't think so, but I, well, I honestly... on comics work, he was brilliant. Right, and I I mean I just I don't know enough about his later career stuff, but yeah, I, I do know there were a lot of people who still thought he could have continued with the Superman books through through the crisis, but. They were just insistent on going in a different direction. Yeah, it's a shame there wasn't, you know, room for one on one of the books, especially since you got people like, you know, Jurgens and Audrey, who were still taking a lot of cues from Kurt Swan. Mm-hmm. He was the Superman artist. He's, he still is for me. I didn't even catch it this time around until you were doing your synopsis. But Fortress Lad came from the planet Fwang. And, and in the in his little like story recap, when we see him or somebody from his species like rescuing the little kids on the planet when he turns into a fortress, the sound effect generated by a meteorite striking his body is fwang. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I want to know though. What what do the females? How? Why are the females not protecting? It's very sexist origin. This. That's <laughs> a good question. I don't know. No, but the, the, the thing is, because you know, as you know, this is a totally standard Legion of Superheroes origin. Like you know, the the Brawlians develop magnetic powers, mm-hmm. and yep. you know, this, this that, and the other. The the, the Bismolians, Bismolians, you know, were able to eat anything. But you know, why would this be so? Just a male only power, unless the women just didn't want to look that stupid. <laughs> good point. 
My last note on the story was just again with Superboy. They weren't going to lose him, but I'm I'm glad. I mean, we need him for that final shot. Absolutely, he's he's, he's got he's got to be there. You know, it's it started with Superboy, and he if you're going to have a, a classic callback like that, you need Superboy. Yeah, it's just him. Supergirl wasn't there too. This story, like I said, it's tragic, it's bittersweet, but it's also graceful and beautiful in the story of this character that nobody is ever going to know, nobody's ever going to understand. It's There's something so elegant about that, what you can do in that type of story in like the superhero genre. And this story really kind of like justifies this issue because I, I'll, you know, I'll be upfront when I got to this, I was like, this is an entire issue of Secret Origins about the different headquarters of this. I was like, okay, if you look at the back matter of this, like Mark Wade's final note in the letters column, He's talking about the upcoming stories that we'll get in the last couple of issues. And he mentions, keep an eye out for Geoforce and Terra, Black Canary, Dolphin, Monel, Red Tornado, Wonder Woman, Swamp Thing, The Silent Knight, and plenty more. Well, we got Black Canary, Dolphin, and Silent Knight. The others never got appearances in Secret Origins. I don't care that much about Geoforce and Terra, but... Red Tornado, Monel, Wonder Woman, Swamp Thing. I would have loved to see any of those secret origins more than the origin of their base, of the uh, headquarters of the Justice League. And then you read a story like this, and it's like, well, damn, this was this kind of made the whole thing worthwhile. Absolutely, I think. I think going back to what you were saying before, I think I wonder, I wonder whether it was just the deadline crunch that just gave Jared Jones and the team just this amazing inspiration. Because supposedly, you know, I mean, you must have heard this a million times, but supposedly the Metal Men were created over a weekend. Mm-hmm. And what what a concept! What an amazing initial story! And they just or the Doom Patrol. The Doom Patrol was created under a, a crunch like that. Were they really? I didn't know that. Yeah, and it was like half the team was created by uh, Arnold Drake and the other half was by Bob Haney. And they were kind of working on two different coasts coming up with these ideas because they needed it over the weekend. Yeah. Oh, Lordy, we need more deadline crunches, Ryan. <laughs> Art from adversity. You talk about some of the best movies and in, in like a, particularly in the science fiction genres and things like that, like the shark in Jaws, the alien in the movie Alien. These things were done. The movies were made a particular way because they couldn't show you the monster because they didn't have the money for computer effects, and that ended up creating something beautiful and something timeless. Sometimes that works with comics, too. If you have something working against you, a lot of times that can generate the most interesting creative sparks. Absolutely. I wonder if maybe in the comments people might have examples of other comics that were created this way, because bearing in mind people know more than me. Oh, sure. Please do. If you're listening, if you've got another example of something like that, let us know. Um, final thoughts about the story? Oh, it's, I just, again, I just, I can barely speak. I just, I just love this story so much. I've been looking forward to chatting about it so much. Mm-hmm. But no, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just a perfect little twelve-page gem. It's just it has a beginning, a middle, an end. Characterization. It's memorable. It establishes something. And okay, probably apocryphal, but given all DC's continuity, it's as. It's as true as anything else. It's the legend. Believe the legend. Mm-hmm. It's so much more interesting than, you know, it was a rocket ship sent by Jor-El with nappies. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like, the kind of throwaway characters that they introduce in this are people that I want to see. Like I said, I want Mnemonic Kid to show up and be a villain more often. I want to see Arm Fall Off Boy join the Legion of Substitute Heroes. And Fortress Lad, who might be my favorite Legionnaire ever. <laughs> I just... 
So yeah, it's a great story. Uh, I'm I'm glad when you said that you really wanted to read that this was the one you wanted to cover. I was like, okay, that'll I wouldn't have thought that, but that'll be interesting. And and rereading it again, I get it. This was a great story. So other. Legion of Superhero stories or, you know, stories that might center on the headquarters or the clubhouse in some fashion that you would recommend? Not a great many because often the headquarters was it was just the, the place that was as big or as small or had whatever they needed in it. At the time, it was the characters who were gen- generally at the forefront. And as, as I say, there was the, the Baxter issue, which was set in one of the next clubhouse, Ghosts. Uh, about ghosts in the clubhouse which was an invisible kid throwback story invisible kid 2 thinking about invisible kid 1 and the best there was a very memorable Baxter issue I think it was in which Monel brings a white dwarf store down into the clubhouse which brought a lot of protests from readers who cared a little bit about science even though we're reading superhero comics going why is the earth not destroyed but uh, no, generally, I mean, this this is the clubhouse story as far as I'm concerned. It was a clubhouse story we never knew we needed. Yeah. Not necessarily clubhouse related, but I'll just mention a few recent Legion books that I picked up on a cheap. I found Secrets of the Legion of Superheroes issue two in a 50 cent bin. So I got that. And I also found packaged together the Magic Wars of the Legion of Superheroes, the whole four part miniseries. I got that for only five dollars. I haven't read it yet. But I will when I get the chance. So. Oh, good stuff so from from uh, from the same run. Have you read the Universal Project? Another four parter. I haven't. No, I'm still I'm still trying to make my way through the Curse Collection. I'm back there. I haven't gotten any of the late, like none of the five years later Legion stuff. But oh, this this this, this was the Baxter run before the. Oh, five okay. Years. Well, I no, I'm still not there yet. I'm still. Oh, like, I saw around, I think I saw I'm around I issue three hundred. Look, it's great. I love that you're you're popping back and forth because you can really get a sense of the different runs of the team and the characters as they were. And probably, I don't know whether you're surprised by quite how how much the characters were the same over thirty odd years. <laughs> oh, it's certainly... part of Lightning Lad. I, I don't know if you've come across the secret of Lightning Lad yet, but if not, I'm not saying anything. I know certain elements of the story. I don't know, like I know he died and I know he came back. I don't know the details of that. I don't know everything to do with his brother. If there's more to it than that, I haven't discovered that yet, but I know there's some stuff out there that I still <laughs> Five years later, matey, that's all I'll say. Okay. I'll get into those. So, Martin, thank you very much for being my guest on Secret Origins again. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? Oh, I've got a, a little comic book review blog called Too Dangerous for a Girl, which I always feel I have to explain. It's not me being super sexist. It's a Legion of Superheroes reference. It was something that was said to Saturn Girl by Brainiac 5 early on. You can't go on this mission. It's too dangerous for a girl. And she told him where to get off. So I'm there doing a few comic book reviews every week. And that's at dangermart.blogspot.com. And generally just popping up in comments sections... I'm on Twitter at, at March Gray. Do say hello on Facebook. But otherwise, I'm just, just, I'm just in the background, Ryan, in the background. Oh, well, we need to get you in the foreground more often. I do always appreciate your comments and your thoughts and your tweets. So it's great talking to you one more time. Again, thank you for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Talk to you again soon, I hope. Last episode looked at the origins of Blackhawk and El Diablo. Something I forgot to mention during my talk with Doug Zavisha 
In El Diablo issue 3, our hero, Rafe Sandoval, quotes, If you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs, if you don't remember that line, you need to go back and listen to Secret Origins Annual Number 2, because that's a line from the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, that played a central thematic part in the origin of the Wally West Flash. Benefits of a classical education. That's from Die Hard. Anyway, last episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from 19JohnBoy85, Alexander Osias, Andrea McKenzie, Ange, Between the Pages, Catgirl at Gabby Tucker 8, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Dan at Dinosaur No One, David Gallagher, David Gutierrez, Delilah Holiday, DS and RS, that's Darren and Ruth Sutherland, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jacob Edwards, At Man Punch It, Keith G. Baker, Longbox Crusade, Lost My Place, Radio vs. the Martians, Relatively Geeky, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Scott Rowland, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Silver and Gold Podcast, Stephen Bird, Sin, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, Waiting for Doom, Warlord Worlds, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zavisha. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Abba Daba, Bradley Austin Null, Carlos Mucha, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics Blog, Dale Russell, Daniel Budnick, David A. Gutierrez, David Foster, David Trenner, DeBeche, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Juliana Leventhal, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Michael Lane, Neil Patterson, Rob Kelly, Robert Ward, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Durden, Sean Emmons, Sean Ross, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Shag, Siskoid, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzens, Van Z, who, by the way, was really happy about the number of Miss America references last episode, and Vinnie Gianfredi III. If I forgot anyone who promoted the show on Facebook or Twitter, I apologize for the oversight. Please let me know, and I will be sure to mention you next time. All right, let's jump over to the comments left at the Fire and Water website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. If you leave a comment on the website, I promise to acknowledge it in some way, although I may not read the entire thing on the air. I do a lot of cherry-picking for the sake of expediency, and I certainly needed to do that in this case because I got a ton of comments on the last episode. Granted, many of them were holdovers from the previous Secret Origins special episode. I asked for top five lists, and brother, I received some top five lists. I'm going to go through the lists and the leftover Batman comments first, and then after that I'll get to the feedback on Blackhawk and El Diablo. First up, Dr. Ange, at my request, revised his top five Batman villains list to include Two-Face, The Riddler, Ra's al Ghul, Hugo Strange, and Catwoman. And Ange said, Odd that Joker isn't on the list. Maybe because he's so omnipresent, it's hard to be a favorite. No one says grass is their favorite plant. Nice analogy. Uh, Rob Kelly mentioned that he, too, forgot about Hugo Strange, and the Mad Doctor might go on his list, bumping Ra's al Ghul out of position. 
Chris Franklin said, here's my top five Bat villains, but I'll go even further with caveats. I'm not counting Joker, Penguin, Catwoman, or the Riddler. They were such a part of the Bat zeitgeist following the 60s TV series that they would take up nearly the entire list. They have to be there, so beyond them... Number five, Man-Bat or the Mad Hatter. I can't decide. I love Man-Bat too much, but realize he's pretty one-note. Nah, don't say that, Chris. You're letting Frank get to your head. Number four, Rachel Ghoul. Number three, Mr. Freeze, post-Batman the Animated Series only. Number two, Two-Face. And number one, The Scarecrow. By the time I collected the listener feedback for last episode, Diabolo Frank had only listened to the Penguin and Riddler segments of the show. He eventually left his comments on the Two-Face segment, and ordinarily I would have left them unattended, but astonishingly, Frank had some really nice things to say about Two-Face, so I'm compelled to share them. Also because I'm not going to read his comments about El Diablo later on. Frank says the first time he read Two-Face in the regular comics was in Batman issue 411, which Frank describes as an unimpressive second part of a two-parter by the out-of-date creative team of Max Allen Collins, Dave Cockrum, and the real acid to the face, Don Heck. Aside from his complexion, he came off as a common thug. I'm assuming Frank's talking about Two-Face and not Don Heck. Within the next few years, I got to read a few more yarns that fared a little better, a multi-partier with Catwoman by Mention Mandrake from 86, or a lot better, The Dark Knight Returns, but I was still not feeling Two-Face. Year one helped, but what really sold me was the interpretation on Batman the Animated Series that showed Harvey Dent as both a good man fighting crime alongside the Caped Crusader, but also a deeply damaged person who only needed that one brutal push to go over the edge. I was very impressed by the voice talent Andrea Romano was bringing to the show and was already a fan of Richard Maul from Night Court and various low-budget 80s horror and fantasy movies, so I was pleased for him to get such a meaty role. By the way, why doesn't anyone ever wax nostalgic for Maul the way they do Conroy, Hamill, Sorkin, or even Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.? Cutting in for a moment, because there are a couple of points to address. Uh, the issue that Frank mentioned, Batman 411, I think that was the first time I read Two-Face in the comics, too. Other than in graphic novels like Dark Knight Returns or Arkham Asylum, it was either that two-parter or the annual we mentioned on the episode. I think I read them both around the same time. The other thing is Richard Mull as the voice of Two-Face. I completely agree. He should get the same amount of love that Conroy and Hamill get, in my opinion. I loved Night Court. It was one of my favorite TV shows growing up, because it came on right after Cheers, which is my favorite TV show of all time. I remember seeing Richard Mull's name on the credits of Batman the Animated Series and thinking, wait, really? Uh, for more on me gushing over that performance, check out an episode of the Supermates podcast that I did with Chris and Cindy Franklin about a year ago. Uh, back to Frank's comment. I was a big fan of Tommy Lee Jones before Batman Forever and hoped he would offer a nuanced, intimidating contrast to Carrie's Riddler instead of trying and failing, but with a grading E for effort, to be equally obnoxious in chasing the ghost of Jack Nicholson. It might have ruined Two-Face for me, but the following year, Bruce Timm wrote the best story about the character I've ever read, two of a kind, in Batman Black and White number 1. That one tale was such a high-water mark for the entire Batman library to me that Two-Face shot right to the upper part of my favorite Gotham rogues. I don't go out of my way to read more, but that lasting affection had me more excited about Aaron Eckhart than Heath Ledger ahead of the Dark Knight's release, and also after, though he should have stayed Harvey Dent until the sequel. 
I had completely forgotten about that story two of a kind, even though I'm pretty sure we talked about it on that Supermates episode that I just plugged. But again, Frank's right. That was an awesome story. They even made a motion comic of that story that you can get on iTunes, I believe. If you haven't seen it or read that story, check it out. Very, very good. Uh, After that, Frank says the Two-Face story in Secret Origins special was his favorite part of the issue. Then he left his top five Batman villains list, which has over a page of single-spaced notes and explanations for his list. Damn it, Frank, I'm not reading all of that, just the names. If you want to know why Frank thinks the way he thinks, listeners, go to the website and check it out for yourselves. Anyway, Frank's honorable mentions, and he's got 11 honorable mentions, and one of them is Magpie? I'm not reading this. I I think he just wrote down every bat villain he could think of. The list itself. Number five, Catwoman. Number four, Lady Shiva. Okay, that's a new one, and Frank's reason for picking her is pretty solid. Respect that choice. Number three, Hugo Strange. Number two, Killer Croc. And number one, Rachel Ghoul and Talia. Lots of love for Hugo Strange coming late in the game. Okay. Paul Hicks accepted the challenge of making random villain lists and said, I can't bring myself to think too hard about Superman's foes as I think it's a much shallower bench, but as an exclusive to the Secret Origins podcast, here's my top five Doom Patrol villains. Number five, The Chief. Number four, The Candlemaker. Number three, Monsieur Mala and the Brain. Number two, Animal Vegetable Mineral Man. And number one, Mr. Nobody. Martin Gray responded to Paul saying, If you can't come up with five good Superman foes, Flanger, you're not trying. And Martin posted his own list of Superman villains that included Mr. Mixispitalik, The Parasite, Metallo, Brainiac, and Lex Luthor, with honorable mentions for Bizarro and Titano. And then Clinton Robison offered his top five Brainiacs, because... Sure, whatever, Clinton. Vril Dox II, Post-Crisis Brainiac, Brainiac 8, Brainiac 5, and the Superpowers Brainiac with Power Action Computer Kick. Oh, we're getting a little bit far afield here. Speaking of, then Ange left his list of top five Supergirl villains. Les Lilar, Superwoman, Satan Girl, Reactron, and Silver Banshee. Then Jimmy McGlinchey went crazy and left a bunch of lists. Best Batman Villains, The Riddler, The Joker, Poison Ivy, The Ventriloquist, and The Penguin. Best Superman Villains, Lex Luthor, Metallo, Parasite, The Prankster, and Mr. Mixispitalik. Best Justice League Villains, The Secret Society of Supervillains slash Injustice Gang, Despero, The Key, The Extremists, and The Crime Syndicate of Earth-3. And Best Green Lanterns, Guy Gardner, Hal Jordan, Kyle Rayner, Jon Stewart, and Kilowog. And finally, we got a comment from a new listener, I think, named Noah Abi. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, Noah. Noah left his top five Batman list. The first name on the list was Killer Croc, and he wrote two full paragraphs explaining his love for Croc. Then he ends it with, I didn't realize how much I liked Killer Croc when I started writing this, and for the record, I thought he was criminally underdeveloped and underutilized in Deadshot and Harley's Hour of Adventure. I mean, Suicide Squad. He was really just played for laughs. Yeah, he was, except they weren't funny. Uh, The rest of Noah's list includes Two-Face, Mr. Freeze, the Man-Bat, and finally, with a bullet, Killer Moth. Hell yeah, Noah. 
This one was a toss-up with Bane, Noah says, but I just love Killer Moth too much to not have him in my top five. He's just so much fun to read. He's so ridiculous that I can't help but love the guy. The fact that he started off as a poorly executed villainous Batman, complete with Mothmobile and a Moth signal. It's just too good to be true. Ah, it really is. I agree. Whew, that is just picking up the pieces from two episodes ago. Let's look at what people had to say about Blackhawk and El Diablo from last episode. You may recall I started last episode telling potential new listeners that the El Diablo featured in Secret Origins had nothing to do with the El Diablo in the movie Suicide Squad. I repeated that message several times during the episode. So naturally, the first comment I got was from Paul Hicks saying, Hey, this had nothing to do with the guy in Suicide Squad movie. Because Paul is a jackass. And you can hear him on the latest episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, and every week on the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom. Much love, Paul. Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians said, I wouldn't worry too much about the Suicide Squad movie version of the character taking over the name. I don't think people will remember that movie in five years. All it takes is a good writer using them again, maybe in a successful team book, and you might just get the trade paperback you want. To which Nathaniel Wayne from Council of Geeks asked, Mike, are you saying that Enchantress mindlessly gyrating as she speaks in a dubbed voice isn't going to become one of the most iconic villains in all of cinema? <sighs> that movie. Then Paul Flanger Hicks came back to say it was a testament to the quality of the Blackhawk story that Rob talked about it like he had a cab waiting outside with the meter running. Okay, yeah, we blasted through the Blackhawk story in record time, I think, but there is a reason for that, and it's mostly my fault. Rob and I actually recorded two things that day back to back. We did Blackhawk, and then we did an episode of Pod Dylan. The thing is, I screwed up the scheduling and misremembered when we were set to record, so Rob waited around for half an hour trying to message me wondering where I was. So by the time I realized my mistake and got to talk to Rob, I'd already wasted half an hour of his time, so we kind of plowed through the episode quickly. That's why it sounded like we couldn't wait to finish talking about it. Paul continues, Doug Zavisha is charming as ever, and I'm not the slightest bit jealous that he got to do the Doom Patrol origin and then have five more appearances. I'll just settle for being a lousy two-timing bastard. Frank, being the lover of stats that he is, replied to Paul, On the bright side, I just ran the numbers, and you've had twice as many appearances as 21 people, and you're still in competition with 10 at five episodes to go. If you're on every single one, you can top the six-timers club of Chris Franklin, Shag, and Siskoid. Would you guys prefer the three sixes? Could it be Satan? And if Kyle Benning is five, if Doug Zavisha is five, if I am five, then you could be seven, and God is seven. I personally am comfortable with matching Bill Murray, but if you can make the walk-in, that would be continental. And then Paul added, And lo, the mark of the devil was upon the beast with three heads, and the heads were known as Chris, Shag, and Siskoid, and they did call unto one another via Skype. Wow, there's a lot going on there that I'm not even going to touch. Except that Frank forgot about Professor Allen. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl and this very episode said, What a dull story the Blackhawk one was, well, the new bits. I'm certainly of the school that believes Blackhawk's past should boil down to, I heard he killed a man once, and yes, we only need the regulars. Count me in for a reprint of the Spiegel-Evanier series. That was good stuff. 
Ange from the Supergirl blog said, I think my first interaction with the Blackhawks was in the mentioned Brave and the Bold 167. Earth 2, Marv Wolfman, Dave Cockrum? Plus, there was something odd but appealing about the Grumman Skyrocket. As a kid, I couldn't believe those were real planes. The next big interaction was in the Chaken miniseries. I know I'm a Chaken apologist, but I really love that mini. Like many of Chaken's books of that era, the story is exceedingly nuanced, a clever way for me to say confusing. It took me a few rereads to follow exactly who was doing what. Once I got it, the plot is pretty brilliant. Now I understand, having Jan be a more liberal person who gets ostracized by the US and goes on a three-week bender isn't classic. But there is so much more than just that change in the origin. And yes, I know Natalie Reed replaced Zinda. I like Natalie Reed. I'd recommend reading it again. As for my favorite Blackhawk, has to be Chuck Siriani, an Italian-American electronics expert. While he looks more like a northern Italian, I have to support my paisans, especially when there isn't a whiff of organized crime on him, a rarity for Italian characters in comics. Good point, and that's coming from Ange, whose last name, if you've never heard it, is actually Capone. Chad Bokelman from the Lantern cast, and now from Action Comics Weekly, which includes a regular Blackhawk segment. So, you know, Chad thinks he's an expert on them now. Chad said, Funny you mentioned the Brave and the Bold 167, Ryan. I literally picked that up two weeks ago from the back issue bins. Haven't read it yet, and now I'm anxious to get home and crack it open. Now, as for Blackhawk and Action Comics Weekly, I've intentionally tried to not read ahead so that I can provide relatively fresh thoughts as I go, unencumbered by future knowledge. So as I type this, I've only read 601 through 603 worth of Action Comics Weekly Blackhawk. I see what people mean. We need Blackhawk in a war, in the fight. That's where the story is most exciting. But I can't just let the negative air surrounding the stories from Action Comics Weekly go unanswered. Those stories may not be the most exciting Blackhawk tales, but they are important, I think. Blackhawk may fit best in a war, but there's at least an interesting story to be told by following a war dog without a war to fight. The battle is won, what does he do? There's almost a slight post-traumatic stress disorder angle to follow there, and it's almost hinted at, but seems to be dismissed when a strange woman pops up offering to pay him for his services. Obviously, for me, it remains to be seen if it plays out in a coherent and interesting way, but conceptually it intrigues me. There is a story there. Should Blackhawk remain enthralled in that? No, eventually adventure and war must return, but there's something there worth exploring. Blackhawk is just too interesting to be confined to fighting Nazis in the skies. Uh, regarding stories about Black Hawk set after the war, be it in Action Comics Weekly or the Marty Pasco Rick Burchett ongoing series that followed, comic book adventure stories, particularly with superhero stories, are perpetually second-act stories. That's how they maintain their serial nature for decades. If you advance Blackhawk to the post-war years, and you raise those questions that you mentioned, Chad, like how does a warrior cope in a world without war, those can be incredible stories. Like, one of my favorite movies is First Blood, the original Rambo movie. But those are finite stories, which is why for the Rambo sequels, they had to put him back in a war scenario somewhere. So... I'm of the opinion that the only Blackhawk story set after the war that should be told is the last Blackhawk story. David Ace Gutierrez also praised the Howard Chaikin Blackhawk miniseries and then left some comments on El Diablo, which is nice because most people said, I've never read El Diablo, so I can't comment. 
David said, I grew up at a time when diversity wasn't really a thing. As a brown kid, I didn't have a lot of heroes I found relatable. There was the Fly, always great to name a character after a pest, El Dorado, some dude in Team America, and that's all I got. Then came El Diablo. Sure, he was dressed in all of the fashion missteps of the 90s southwestern fashion. And sure, he was neither written nor drawn by a brown brother, but I had a book that felt like it was set in a place I recognized. And it had a guy who was brown, and that became a facet of his character and thankfully not his soul-defining quality. He wasn't a janitor, or a cook, or an illegal. He went to law school and was a public servant, and he was as much a part of his city as Batman was to Gotham or Superman was to Metropolis. He was symbolic of promise and potential, and I'm glad he was given a shot, even if it was for less than two years. Man, I miss that character. But not the costume. Chris Franklin said, El Diablo was a character I wanted to give a try, but my trips to the big city and a comic shop were infrequent in my pre-driver days, so I missed out. I've never even owned this issue of Secret Origins. I can still see the loose-leaf who's who entry of this version. The fact that the original Vigilante shows up later in the series makes the whole thing that much more appealing. More fodder for bin diving. You and Doug sold me. Mm, excellent. Joe X answered one of my questions from last episode. Blackhawk's solo title began with issue 9, I believe, and I wasn't sure which book it replaced. Joe X said it took over the numbering of Uncle Sam Quarterly. Thanks, Joe. He also says, El Diablo is a very Golden Age-style character with liberal amounts of Daredevil thrown in, in that we see the public servant putting on a costume to do what the law can't. You know, in the vein of the Guardian, Airwave, or the Red Bee. I like to think that he puts the costume away after a few years and became the DC Universe version of Matt Santos, Jimmy Smith's character from The West Wing. Well, I guess that means President El Diablo in Season 7. Or El Presidente? Jeff Nettleton, who knows a thing or two about the military, left another lengthy and insightful comment describing his experiences reading Blackhawks, his impressions of the Golden Age material, the Chaken miniseries, and the stories that came after by Mike Grell and Marty Pasco. Of the origin story, Jeff said, The origin is fine, though the new material doesn't do a whole lot for me. I do agree that the Blackhawks work better in World War II, but I think you can do them after the war, just not as CIA operatives slash dupes or as a pseudo-Air America, which is what Blackhawk Express was. Mercenary adventures, yes. I can see them in the Congo, flying for the Katanga separatists against the UN. I can see them in the Nigerian Civil War, supporting the Biafrans. I definitely see them helping the Israelis in the War of Independence in 1948. Maybe even flying Israel's first fighter plane, surplus German BF-109 Messerschmitts. The planes, the Grumman XF-5F Skyrocket, was being developed as a naval aircraft to provide a twin-engine carrier-based fighter. It had some engine overheating problems, which is why it never made it into service, but it was a unique design, so quality latched onto it. It's not a totally unique idea, though, as the P-38 Lightning, which did see service, was even wilder, with twin engines and twin tails on separate booms with a central cockpit body. Among its pilots was Richard I. Bong, who was America's most decorated ace in World War II with 40 kills. I mean, I know the guy's an American hero and all, but really, his name was Richard I. Bong? Man, I would get into so much trouble with that. Clinton Robison of Coffee and Comics Blog said, For years, Blackhawk was a character I knew only through the DC Cosmic trading card set. Thankfully, I finally got better information later on that he wasn't just a parachuting Nick Fury-looking guy. 
Jimmy McGlinchey said, Not sure about the hate for Suicide Squad. I thought the film was good and felt the incarnation of El Diablo was very good. That version of El Diablo was in the new 52 Suicide Squad from the start, but I didn't realize that version had his own miniseries in 2008 by Jay Nets and Phil Hester. I understand that miniseries linked his origin to that of Lazarus Lane, the first El Diablo. That's right, it did. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but yes, Lazarus Lane becomes a character in the 2008 series, and the Chato version is a legacy in more than name only. Uh, got a comment from the Five Earths Project. Ryan, your Blackhawks in space idea was a joke, right? Please tell me it was a joke. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, duh, <laughs> of course, yeah. Totally a joke, yeah. In seriousness, Five Earths Project said, As a huge Blackhawk fan, I strongly oppose any attempts to update the character for a modern take. Every attempt thus far has been disastrous and wrong-headed. If you want a team of fighter pilots in space, create new ones. Just don't call them the Blackhawks. You know, that, that opinion, fair enough. I've certainly applied that same kind of logic in other circumstances. Uh, during the episode, Rob and I kind of came down on Blackhawk himself for being the most aloof and colorless member of the team, while the ensemble was a lot more interesting. Five Earths objected to that and put up a good defense, saying, Blackhawk was the original Dark Knight, and that term was used in Quality Comics' original Blackhawk stories long before DC appropriated it for Batman. And trust me, he earned that title. The real reason that the series is called Black Hawk and not The Black Hawks is first because it wasn't intended to be an ensemble series, and second because Black Hawk is a total badass. His first adventure featured Black Hawk tracking down over the course of many months a bloodthirsty Nazi pilot named Von Tepp, who was responsible for mercilessly gunning down his non-combatant sister and brother during the German invasion of Poland. Keep in mind that Blackhawk managed to track down and kill Von Tepp in a duel at a time when nearly all of Europe was occupied by the Nazis, requiring a great deal of stealth and skirmishes behind enemy lines. Batman or the Punisher couldn't have done better, and that was only the first of many such missions. The Blackhawks essentially acted as backup for their leader, but never drove the plot in those early stories. Each of the Blackhawks were heroic in their own way, but Blackhawk was always the real star of the book, around whom all the Blackhawks revolved. He shouldn't be shunted away to the sidelines like General Hawk in the G.I. Joe series, or giving orders from a remote location like Mockingbird in the original Secret Six series. You really have to read the original Blackhawk stories by Will Eisner to understand why this character was so popular in his time that he ended up featured in his own serial starring Kirk Allen. I've got the DC archives of Blackhawk, but I've only managed to read that first issue. That whole Von Tepp story with Blackhawk tracking down the murder of his brother and sister, that would have made such a better origin story than the one that we got last issue. Anyway, lastly, we got comments from Diablo Frank again. You know, Frank is always championing women and underrepresented minority heroes in superhero comics, so I am always eager to hear what he has to say about them when we get to someone like Black Lightning or El Diablo. But, like a fool, I forgot that Frank's analysis of Black Lightning made me want to put a cigarette out in my hand just to know that I could still feel anything. And his take on El Diablo was equally depressing and dismissive, although he prefaced it by saying he's never read any El Diablo, which makes it all the easier to just skip what he thinks about the character. On to Blackhawk, Frank chronicled his reading experience over different eras of Blackhawk stories. 
None of these books, Frank said, did much to make me think of Blackhawk as more than a somewhat more successful DC war comic hero well past his prime. Then I read the chapter of the Starenko history of comics where Jim shared his love for the series, and I now love Blackhawk secondhand. I still haven't read any great stories, but I adore Jim Starenko's descriptions of the yarns he read in his youth, how Blackhawk basically appropriated the fashion and attitude of the Nazis while assuaging our guilt over digging on fascism by turning their Reich's imagery against it. Blackhawk himself was an icy killer, while his men were a colorful collection of refugees from countries taken over by the Reich. Despite their all being pilots in modified Grumman skyrockets, the team spent most of their adventures on their feet in exotic locales against heinous adversaries. I still haven't gone back to read the earlier adventures Jim Sterenko spoke of, even though they're in the public domain and readily available online. Lack of time and fear of disappointment, I suppose. I've bought some issues of the 1976 and 1982 revivals dirt cheap, halfway liking the ones I've read with plans to try more for future blogging slash podcasting. Uh, Frank complains about DC's use of the Blackhawks since acquiring them from quality, then adds, The old squadron can work outside of World War II, even into sci-fi in the 1960s, but I do think they need to be retired beyond that point. I like the idea of wartime groups like the Blackhawks having to pick up the JSA's slack in the Atomic Age, routing the monsters and strange invaders in full blossom the society would have once nipped in the bud. I'd like to see a modern-day version of Blackhawk standing on his own as a soloist with a new squadron serving as his support staff slash occasional private army. I put a lot of thought into how to adapt a new incarnation of Blackhawk into the modern meta-human world, and I see a ton of potential there. And with that ominous thought, we close out another episode of Secret Origins Podcast. Once again, I want to thank my guests Mike Peacock, Greg Arujo, and Martin Gray for joining me. Thanks to all of you who listened to this episode, and especially those of you who supported the show on social media or left comments on Facebook or the website. A quick programming note, there will not be a new episode next week. Monday is a holiday in the United States, which affects this show only in as much as it throws off my schedule for recording and editing. Thus, next episode, Secret Origins 47, should drop on September 12th. However, just because there's no episode coming out next week doesn't mean there won't be an announcement of some kind. It might be worth your while to check out the Fire & Water social media feeds next Monday. Until then, Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening.
该。